It's because they're afraid of change and they're afraid of learning new things. Um, they're afraid of failure. Now, it's it's ultimately their fear of failing that is going to result in their failure because they're not willing to learn what the next coolest thing is or educate themselves so they can diversify their their product. I think too many times people are afraid because they think that if I change, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to always be different. Welcome to your go-to podcast for the pool and spa industry. My name is Tyler Rasmussen. And my name is Greg Viafania. And this is the Pool Chasers Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? Thank you so much for joining us today on the Pool Chasers Podcast. Our mission is to help educate and inspire in the form of a podcast. Today, we have a very, very special guest, founder and CEO of Ledge Lounger, Christopher Anderson. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. Hey guys, thank y'all for having me. I think what y'all are doing is amazing and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, we know you're a really busy guy, so we're just going to jump right into this. Um, Can you explain to us and to our listeners what Ledge Lounger is exactly? Absolutely. Thanks for the question. Um, You know, what Ledge Lounger is today and what it might have been three years ago is two different things. So I just like to kind of make that parallel. Um, We, uh, Originally, when the company was founded, we were certainly the ledge lounger. We were the in-pool chase, uh, made to go in the pool, in the shallow area, in the tanning ledge. Uh, and today, what ledge lounger is, is more or less a, an outdoor furniture company specializing in all things outdoors, uh, around the pool, the patio. Um, and uh, you're going to continue to see our, our line diversify for the backyard, front yard, patio furniture, not just for the residential market, but also for the commercial market, hospitality, multifamily. Um, that's our, our path forward. Is most of your furniture in the, um, you know, more of the commercial, you know, poolside places? You know, we have a, a pretty even split when it comes to our wholesale sales or our, our dealer sales. Uh, about 25% goes out to the pool market. Another 25% uh, goes out to, or shall I say 50-50, 50% goes out to the pool industry directly, uh, another 50% goes out to the commercial industry. And when I say pool industry directly, of course, at times there could be somebody designing and building a commercial pool. We track that as a pool industry sale. Uh, but we do a you know a good bit of e-commerce direct as well, people coming straight to our website and buying because they might already have a swimming pool in their backyard and they're not interacting with a pool builder at that point in time. Uh, so they will come direct to our website and buy it. So great thing there is, is either the pool builder is going to sell it and great get that opportunity to make some money off of it, or they're going to potentially come to us after the fact and buy it. Uh, we like, however, to set up the relationships first with the pool builders and allow them to make money off of our product. Nice. Thank you. Very cool. Well, we can't wait to hear more about the product and kind of, you know, what it takes to build a business to your scale. Um, but we usually like to start a little bit about your early years, how you kind of got into it and become an entrepreneur and, you know, started Les show you, can you kind of just tell us a little bit more about yourself, you know, starting with like kind of where you grew up? Sure. Let me try not to bore you here. Um, but no, (laughs) (laughs) going back, you know, I, I grew up in a family, um, you know, a lot of people would say, unfortunately, but I, I might disagree. I mean, parents got divorced when I was six years old. I had two older brothers uh, and my mom had to work really, really hard to support us. So I've kind of been an entrepreneur at heart just because I had, if I wanted allowance for the weekend, I had to go out and find a way to make that. Um, I didn't have mom and dad 
you know, handing me cash to go hang out at the movie theater or anything along those lines. So I think that's kind of where for me, entrepreneurism started is, you know, I would uh, actually one of my um, top people here, one of my partners in Ledge Laundry, he and I used to drag a wagon around the neighborhood and wash cars for four bucks, five bucks a pop. Um, and as a, you know, let's say, say 12 years old, 12 years old to knock on somebody's door and ask them if you can wash their car. I don't really realize, I didn't really realize until now the impact that that had on me as a salesperson and all the experience that I just gained doing that, not even realizing that I learned how to talk to people. I learned how to convince them to give me $4 to wash the car. I learned how to assure them that we weren't going to damage the car in the process. Um, you know, and we, we tend to do it at apartment complexes because we realize that we could go into an apartment complex and, and hit a hundred cars versus going in a neighborhood and then get a lot less. So when you even look at that and how you apply the marketing approach to more of a mass market, it's really easy to look at that stuff hindsight and say, man, look at all these critical things I learned and I didn't even realize I was learning. Um, but you know, my father, uh, getting back to your question, my father owned a, a swimming pool company growing up. So yes, you know, I, having that experience doing these little things to make money on the side, such as washing cars, cleaning up sticks after storms in people's yards, just finding any way to make a buck. Um, but then of course, once I was old enough and I could help my dad out, uh, you know, I was on a job site digging ditches, you know, uh, plumbing trenches because my dad had us every other weekend and he might have to go out and work on a Saturday because that's how the pool industry is. And all of a sudden on Saturday, I'm digging ditches and my dad's paying us 10 bucks an hour. But ultimately, he's doing it just to keep us busy because he had to be on the job site during the day. Uh, my two older brothers and I, right? So we learned that digging ditches is not fun. Um, had a lot of respect for the guys that do it after trying to experience it. But really what it did was it turned me off. I did not want to get into the pool industry whatsoever. Uh, why? Because I didn't see the fun side of it. I saw the hard side of it. Uh, I saw my dad working on Saturdays when he could have been you know, spending time with us not on a job site. Uh, I saw him doing designs in the evening time uh, and going out and busting his butt during the day, which I think is what 80, 90 percent of the pool industry does. Um, you know, so so I said, no, I'm I'm going to go to college. Uh, so I ran off to uh, to LSU, um, graduated from LSU in 2005 with a construction management degree just because I like building. Um, and then ultimately with taking that degree, I, I didn't have anything to do with it. When I was in college, I got highly involved in the student media. I was the student director of the online, uh, excuse me, not the online, the school newspaper, television station, radio station. And it happened to be the year that LSU won the national championship, go Tigers. And, uh, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden our school got a lot of media attention uh, during that time. And when we did, obviously our school newspaper blew up. So, it was the first year the school media had uh, sold a million dollars worth of advertising. Uh, and I was just happened to be leading it at that time. I'd like to say right place at the right time. But it got a lot of recognition from that. Uh, and I ended up going to work for the Dallas Morning News. Uh, and that was in the beginning of online media, the beginning of really the beginning of websites and businesses having websites and um, trying to figure out what platforms online we could sell and come out and make money off of. Uh, it was, you know, a lot of the, the newspapers were struggling. Actually, they weren't struggling yet, but they saw the writing on the wall. They saw that people were starting to shift their budgets to uh, online media versus in, you know, newspaper ads. And they saw how we could target people uh, much more direct. So 
I fell in love with that because I was able to be creative and I was working key accounts, trying to convince them to move their spend over to online uh, versus spending it in the newspaper. Um, to be honest, I kind of got caught up in the uh, the Dallas lifestyle, um, kind of got in over my head, I guess you could say. Of course, right out of college, it's easy just to go party and forget about all the responsibility that you have. And uh, at that same time, I got a job offer from a guy up in Nebraska. Um, it was a web development company. Uh, they had built the publishing platform for all the student newspapers. So that's how I was aware of them and they were aware of me. We used the media platform at LSU. And his whole concept was if I have, you know, 50 colleges or 100 colleges that are using my advertising platform, then he could go get an ad from MTV or Procter & Gamble or something like that and place it across all 100 of his media outlets, all 100 of these school newspapers. So he actually got the rights to some of the advertising space. And in return, he provided this platform to the colleges. So going up there, I, I was director of business development. Um, at the time, he was on the campaign trail, so I was pretty much running the company. I learned a lot about building websites, uh, building platforms, trying to understand what the consumer's looking for before they even knew. So basically what we did, because he sold the platform right when I got there, and then we started a new platform called Motortopia, which eventually went on to sell to Beckett. Uh, if you all remember the old baseball, the card, baseball card, heck yeah, uh, directory where you'd price your baseball cards, right? Uh, they still the company, have that. Yeah, yeah, it still exists. I don't, I don't know if they still have the Beckett per se, but the company still exists. Okay. And and that company actually bought this website we developed uh, over the course of the year while I was up in Nebraska. And virtually what it was is it was a social media platform. And instead of well, you did have a profile, but you also had a garage. Uh, and in each different one of your garages, you would have a different car. So all the classic car collectors out there would put their cars in their garage. And it was a way that other auto enthusiasts could come on the line and read about other people's cars and see pictures and do all these things. So I had a pretty diverse background in from a commercial perspective, or excuse me, yeah, commercial business perspective. Uh, and then I came back to, uh, to Houston. And when I did, it was a great opportunity for me to just back in 2007 uh, my dad's pool business was just going nuts. Uh, he had more business he could handle. And I came in and literally was in the truck with him for six months, driving around from job to job, getting another business, getting another industry. Uh, you know, I knew a little bit about it, obviously, because because he had been in it basically since the day I was born. Uh, but right in about 2008, 2009 is when I really started doing a lot of sales and design work. Um, you know, we were like number of custom design pools is like number four on uh Pool Studio. I mean, we, we still, I mean, we got into them so long ago. And so as soon as I started, I was immediately, I mean, my dad told me, he said, you're going to use Pool Studio to do this. This is what we use. And immediately I just found the way to utilize Pool Studio to design the entire space, obviously, and not just the pool. Uh, and so for my dad having to work hard during the day, you know, to put in a 10, 10 hour day out in the field, to coming home, um, being tired, and then having to design a project. Uh, what I was able to do once I learned the field, I would stay back at back at the house during the day, and I would focus on the designs. So when he got home from work, he didn't have to do the design work anymore, and I could put a lot more time and energy into those designs. So now, just instead of designing the pool, I would design the landscape, I would design the arbors, I would design the summer kitchens, and then I would task him, of course, to go out and build all this stuff. 
Um, so that's where a big shift change came in custom design pools was, uh, again, this is where I think a lot of pool builders get stuck is they're afraid to hire a designer. They try and do it all on their own. And what they don't realize is how much more beneficial it can be when they hire a designer, bring them in house, the business can just blossom because they're not, the success of their design work does not tie back to how tired they are that day after they get home from a, from a busy day out in the field. Yeah. And you probably slack on it quite a bit. If, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You have a long day in the field and you have to get back and you have to design a new pool or something like that. And yeah, the product's yeah, not going to be as good. Absolutely. It, it's surely not because you're exhausted, right? And we all know when we're exhausted, and we're doing something, we're not going to do it near as great. Uh, and the other thing to be said there is if I'm the builder and the designer, in some cases, it might be better for me to design something that's easier to go build. Right, yeah, sure. because right. I, I can take the pressure off myself. But if I'm a designer and I don't have to be the one out in the field building it, then I can challenge. I'm more willing to challenge the people uh, that are out there designing or building it because I don't have to be the one out there doing it. Uh, it's a catch twenty two, but at the same time, it's it's overall going to benefit the pool company, and it did. It benefited us dramatically. We went from an average seventy thousand dollar project to an average two hundred forty thousand dollar project. My dad, oh, wow. before I started, was building twelve. 11 or 12 projects a year. When I was there, we were building about four projects a year at 240 again, versus 11 at 70. Wow. Um, so we really, really increased the overall price per job. Uh, and we found a lot of, of good revenue streams with all the upsells, with all the added value stuff, not just the swimming pool. Yeah. So going back just a little bit, um, sure. you know, when you were growing up, you know, as a, you know, a young adult, was there anything, you know, special or unique that, really kind of help shape who you're going to be in the future? Because, I mean, you talk about, you know, spending, you know, the weekends with your dad and different things like that. You know, was there a time digging ditches or going through some other things that just kind of made you work a little bit harder or just got into a different mindset? Because it sounds like you had a little bit more of an entrepreneur spirit, you know, with, you know, dragging the wagon here and there. And, you know, you didn't know what you were doing at the time, but you were really kind of being an entrepreneur um, was there other things that, you know, really help shape the person you are today? Sure. Uh, you know, I think it's, I mean, that's a great question. I think there's, there's a ton of things that shape us. I mean, when I look back, you know, I wasn't, um, I wasn't too interested in high school or college sports. I was a small guy, right? So when it came to playing football, it just wasn't going to happen because, you know, I'd, I'd get the crap knocked out of me on the field, you know, <laughs> yeah, but some it's big boys in Texas, <laughs> <laughs> but instead of just being on the team, just to be on the team, you know, I realized that it wasn't something I was going to be great at. Um, I quickly realized that what I really enjoyed was the sports where I could control my own destiny, you know? So I got into shotgun shooting. We, uh, shot sporting clays and skeet competitively. Uh, in doing that, I found an enjoyment working at a shooting range. So I worked at uh, a skeet and sporting clay shooting range um, where we made just a tremendous amount of money because everybody out there was very wealthy and we worked for tips and we might bring home a hundred, two hundred dollars a day in tips out of the shooting range. I, I found a lot of enjoyment in that, but I also just, I found joy in, it, it's not necessarily about the dollar. It's not about the money. It's about the challenge to make it right. I, I think a lot of people said judge success on how much you make. I think, how much you make is a byproduct of success, right? If I, can, yep. if I go out there and do something really, really, really well, in, or I, maybe I start at it and I suck at it, but I figure out how to be 
better at it. And I figure out how to be better than anybody else at it. Um, virtually the best people in any industry are going to make the most money. So again, I, I think that's a byproduct. Um, you know, I, I love Mark Cuban. Uh, he, he inspires me a lot because he's a no bullshit kind of guy that's going to get down to the nitty gritty. And he says, you know, if you want to be successful, you go out and you bust your butt and you make it happen. You work harder than all your competitors. Uh, I believe that I live that, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not asking anybody here at the company to do anything that I'm not willing to go out and do myself. I want to understand their job. While I want to make sure I get the right people on the bus in the right seat that are great at their job, but I want to understand what they're doing. I want to let them do a great job at it, but I want to, I want to have a good understanding. So, you know, what I, to get back to your question, uh, what's, what stands out? I think it was just a diversity of involvement. You know, a lot of people in, in, no discredit to anybody that is like the the football player or the baseball player and that's what they focus on as long as they're focusing on being the absolute best at it. Now, some of those things are just innate. Some of those things are just natural. And, you know, you can either pitch a ball 99 miles per hour or you can't. I mean, you can't. Yes, you can make yourself stronger and yes, you can go to the gym, but there's going to be a pinnacle. There's going to be something you reach when you just really can't do much better. So how much natural ability do you have? You know, with business, you can always learn. You can just continue to learn and learn and learn. And that's, you know, even in that that pool video you saw, you know, that you don't just go out and upsell products when you're selling pools just because. You have to be willing to go out and learn about other types of products in order to be able to sell them because you got to have the confidence in selling them. So I think my diverse diverse background growing up into different businesses, uh, different jobs that I had when I got out of college. In college, my desire to just be involved in a lot of different things, whether it was fraternity or extracurricular activities or groups, um, you know, while I did graduate with a construction management degree, I had a very open mind as to what was going to come next. I didn't pigeonhole myself at any point in time. And had I pigeonholed myself into a certain type of career, I don't think I would have ended up ending, you know, ending up with Ledgelander with the business because I would have had a very closed mind. So. I think just always being open-minded and always wanting to hustle. Those were probably two of the things that happened at an early age that got me where I am today. Yeah, that's awesome. And we think that that has definitely probably been the biggest thing to help shape who you are. Um, This is a little bit personal. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. But um, do you think seeing your parents get divorced at an early age kind of made you want to strive to maybe, you know, have something better in the future and have a family one day where you just kind of stayed together. Cause I know me personally, um, my parents went through a lot when I was really young and that has been my prime focus since I was very young was to make my own money and have a family and stay with my family and never break us apart. You know, yep. you know, that's, that's all. That's a great question. I appreciate you, you asking that it's, you know, there's, things happen over generations that, that are out of our control. Um, and I think being able to open up your eyes and see what's happened in the past and realize that it's happened and know that you're going to attempt to change the future. That's critical. Uh, identifying that and seeing that certainly my parents' divorce had a major impact on my life. Um, you know, a lot of people would say, man, that sucks that my parents got divorced and, uh, man, I wish my parents were together so I could go, to one house come Christmas day and not have to go drive to this house and drive to that house. 
But when we look at the things we overcome in life and how they made us who we are today, I think that's a really big reason why I'm at where I'm at. I would have not had to been nearly as independent as I was had my parents stayed together, uh, which I have no doubt that I wouldn't be where I was at, I am at today. Now, uh, you know, in in the same life, where would I end up if my parents were together? Who knows? I don't want to say that I know the answer to that, but um, without a doubt, I think things that happen. But it's also like you just said, it's the way we look at them. You know, am I going to see this as a positive and focus on the positive that's going to come out from this, or am I going to see it as a negative? Uh, it, but that's that's every single day in business. That's not just as a youth growing up and parents getting divorced. It's every single day dealing with the challenges, overcoming them, learning from them, and uh, becoming a better person because of them. Definitely. And I think we all come, you know, from different walks of life. And just because you had, you know, that version of your life, somebody could have done nothing with it, but it takes a special kind of person to just rise above it. And if you decide to rise above it, makes you, you know, much better and stronger. You get thick skin from it because there's not much that can phase you. And if you're not solely just thinking about money, you're just, you love to hustle and you love to, you know, be in the business. That's, that's the coolest thing, you know, not because if you're not thinking about money, you're just doing it because you love it. It's, it's almost like the fortune will come because you're just doing what you love. Money being the sole driver, it's just not going to get you where you want to go because, uh, it just doesn't do it. doesn't do it for us. doesn't do it for me to just, you know, focus on that one thing and worship the dollar every single day. You know? Absolutely. And in fact, it could potentially hurt you if that's your focus, because if you're only focused on the dollar and you're not willing to admit when you're wrong to a client because the, there might be a financial impact to that, then that referral that you could have had if you would have done the right thing can hurt your business a whole hell of a lot more than just doing the right thing at one point in time, losing a little bit of money and moving on. Uh, and, you know, with the pools, there's a lot of liability when you're out there building them. Even with this business, there's a lot of liability in every decision I make. And, and making sure you're doing the right thing is going to have a much more long-term success than, than again, just uh, not doing the right thing, even at the expense of what it would take to correct it. Sure. Yeah. Did you guys, did you grow up with a pool growing up? Did you guys have one? <laughs> uh, you know, one of my earliest memories is my dad putting, digging a hole in the ground and putting a, uh, a spa in the ground. It was a fiberglass spa way back then when, but unfortunately, no, I, I didn't grow up with a pool other than that was because, you know, once my parents got divorced, uh, we pretty much lived in apartments. Um, and my mom simply did not have the income. Obviously, you're not going to build a pool in your backyard in an apartment complex. But uh, no, uh, I can't say that I did. However, you know, I was able to build a pool personally for myself after three or four years selling pools for my father. Obviously, uh, he was able to build it for me at a discounted price um, and uh, utilize the resources we had to get it done. And so I'd say about seven years ago was the first time I was ever a pool owner. Uh, and, uh, it was a great experience because it really helped me be able to sell the product better, sell swimming pools better after experiencing them uh, at a deeper level for myself. So I nice. got, got to know this. Do you take care of your own pool or yeah, <laughs> did you have a pool guy when you had it built? Man, that's a great question. Uh, I did not take care of my own pool. Um, <laughs> and th there's a few reasons why, uh, one, you could certainly say that, um, I'm going against my own word when I say that. I should have taken the time to learn more about chemicals, how to maintain a, a swimming pool. But, you know, my focus was always how to build the pools. Uh, and I felt like 
the more I was focused on maintaining my swimming pool in my backyard, the less time and commitment I could give to designing the next pool or focusing on the next project. Uh, and honestly, I'm just, I know where my skills are and my skills are not in the every week task of, you know, doing something every week that I don't look forward to, forward to do. <laughs> um, and that's here at the business too. I mean, I've got to delegate certain things that I realize that I'm not a taskmaster on uh, to make sure that they get done and get done right. Uh, and not delegating those things could pretty much hamper the business pretty quickly because it's just not something I'm great at. Sure. So you kind of talked about growing up in the pool industry with your dad and stuff. Obviously, your first kind of job there would be kind of digging ditches. You mentioned the custom design pools a little bit. So how long did you kind of do the custom design pools? Are you still kind of design pools? Do you still do that side of the business? So I think uh, probably over the last six months has been my true phasing out of custom design pools. Uh, my father has uh, ultimately retired at this point. He's still doing a few projects here and there. Uh, my dad was an original member, if you will, of Ledge Lounger. Uh, so he's had some financial success through that, which has allowed him to retire a little bit earlier than he wanted to. Um, and, you know, he's, he still loves the industry. He still loves getting out there. He's a hands-on kind of guy. Uh, but he's also getting a little bit older and he wants to spend some time with his grandkids and his wife and, you know, just not have things that he has to do every day and kind of just enjoy life a little bit, which I have a lot of respect for. Uh, for I'm sure. still, I still ask him to come around Ledge Lounger office and participate as much as he can. Uh, for myself, uh, you know, I can't say that I'll never take on another design here or there. We certainly get phone calls asking for designs every now and again. We get phone calls asking if we can build their pool. Right now I'm passing those leads on to a few other builders in the, uh, in the area that I know and I like really well. Um, but it, it's critical for me to keep up to date on it. We st I still utilize Pool Studio quite a bit uh, because we offer a service for our clients where if they have a commercial property, even a residential property, and they want us to put ledge lounger furniture in it, we'll create a 3D rendering and show them what, what it's going to be. So, and, and I still, you know, I still have a lot of, I help out with APSP every now and again here locally in the marketplace. Uh, you know, I still teach at some of the pool shows and different things. So, uh, I, I still have a big passion for the pool industry, and I don't see myself uh, getting out of it, even from a builder perspective. Uh, I want to stay up to date on what's going on and what the in the industry trends are and that sort of thing. Nice. So do you remember the day that you had the idea and vision for Ledge Lounger? Because anybody, I'm kind of an idea person myself, and some days it just gets so excited, like, oh, man, this is a game changer. I have this really cool idea. And do you remember the day that you had the idea for even the first piece of furniture you were going to build? I do, actually. So I, I designed a project for a gentleman uh, here in Houston, and it was a very, very, very large project. I think the uh, the total price tag on the project was a little over a million dollars. The pool was around $425,000, if I can recall right. And the landscape was a majority of the rest of the million. I mean, front yard, backyard, it was a... 10 acre property, a lot of space, a lot of, lot of stuff. I mean, I think a project had $200,000 in palm trees. Um, it was crazy. It was an awesome project. Great, great customer. Um, he challenged me quite a bit because when I designed the furniture in on the job, I showed up and I, I installed a couple regular Chase lounge chairs, actually from Restoration Hardware, uh, and I put them in the pool. And uh, the homeowner challenged me. He said, look, Chris, how's the water going to damage those chairs? I said, well, well, you're right. It's, it's probably going to damage those chairs, but 
there are, you know, there are alternatives. And he challenged me. He said, well, why don't you go, why don't you find one for me? And this is one of those guys that has so much money. He's going to end up getting whatever he wants. It's just going to be a matter of who he's going to challenge or task to go out and do it. Well, I had seen something kind of similar uh, at a few resorts I'd been to. Um, they weren't necessarily used in the pool. A few times they were. Uh, and so I, at one of the resorts I saw them in was a resort at Las Vegas. And I, I called the resort over and over and over trying to find out who provided the, that product because I wanted to be <laughs> able to purchase that for my client. And literally after 45 days of calling that resort every single day, and I figured if I call them every day, eventually they're going to take my call and eventually they're going to give me an answer. They finally told me who supplied the product. So I, I did some research on the company. I called them up, and it turned out that the uh, lady selling it uh, was selling it for $3,400 for one chase. Wow. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, maybe this one client could afford that, but 99% of my other clients, there's no way they will ever be able to afford anything like it. Um, so I, I, I took that, and I said, you know, I'm going to – try and talk to this woman and see if she's interested in developing something that is not so expensive. Um, she had no interest whatsoever. Uh, none. Um, she, she actually turned me down four or five times after I talked to her about the opportunity and the fact that I was highly involved in the pool industry and I could make something work. And I'd never manufactured anything in my life before. So I didn't know what to do or how to do it. But I think that's where the idea really stuck is in getting turned down so many times it was, wow, this must be something that's really hard to create and develop because nobody else has. Um, and how would I go about doing this? And so literally it took me about two and a half years of just researching a lot of different manufacturing facilities and different manufacturing techniques and trying to find the right way. Because again, the other, the product that I'm talking about or I'm referring to, it was not made to go inside the swimming pool. So we had to figure out something that could go in the pool and work. So I, th I think that was that for us was the challenge in identifying the right materials to make it out of, what was going to last in the pool and the water, uh, and what was going to be durable and still somewhat comfortable. Uh, those were all major challenges that we faced in developing it. But yeah, I think the original idea I remember when it was, and it was fulfilling a need for a client that wanted the right product for the right environment. That's really cool, and it's cool that you took into account that you needed to make something that would be a little bit cheaper because this is the case. This guy might need it, but he's definitely got a much bigger budget than 99% of people that are going to have a pool built or even, you know, the backyard landscape, you know, cause even that project on a, you know, regular residential home is still, you know, very expensive. Um, so it was really cool to take that into account. Do you have any idea why um, the other ladies, chair was so expensive would you say it was like 34 3600 yeah it was 3600 they you know still sell them today um you see them in some like architectural digest type environments but they're certainly in the five plus million dollar homes uh they're typically indoors they're not really used outside occasionally you'll see them used outside but i i think the the big thing and to your point is you've got to be reasonable to yourself right you even are you've already said it in this in this podcast is we sell a six hundred and forty, excuse me, six hundred fifty nine dollar chase, which still can be seen as high. But you look at any chase lounger that's made to go on a patio, and they're twelve or fourteen hundred dollars. If you go to Restoration Hardware, Pottery Barn, uh, Front Gate, 
anything like that, anything that's going to last more than a year is certainly going to be, you know, a little bit more money, um, up to twelve, a thousand dollars, twelve hundred dollars. So I think being in tune to my clients and what they could afford, but also being in tune to the fact that it it not only is something to lay in and, and sit in and be comfortable in, but it's also something that can allow you to use your pool more because a lot of the times we don't um, we don't really want to get in our pool and go swim laps. We want to just relax. Um, but also, um, you know, understanding the marketplace, understanding that what price point can we take? I was, you know, at first I was concerned bringing this thing to market at, at $659. The fact of the matter is, is it takes us almost two hours to make one product. Wow, so, wow. you know, a lot of people think, well, man, you probably just stamp these out and print these out and you can just go on and sell these things and you're making a killing. Well, that's not necessarily the reality of it. You know, we have to have a retail price that allows uh, a pool builder to make money, that allows a distributor to make money. We can still make enough money to operate our business and carry our overhead and our costs. Um, so, you know, that's one of the things I think we did successful is we we came to market with a price that allowed us to uh, to build everybody else in, uh, allow the pool builder to be successful with it, the distributor to be successful with it, us to be successful with it, and allow it to uh, give us a revenue to continue to expand and grow our business. Um, but but getting back to the question ultimately of, you know, yes, we had to be very aware of what percentage of pools are built are one hundred thousand dollar pools. There's there's a, there's a lot of them out there, but it's not a majority of them. The majority of them are the fifty to sixty thousand dollars, and that's you know that's something that we think about all the time. And how can we develop a, a a lower price point product that can focus on that that lower or I don't want to say lower income because there certainly are, are still a good income market. It's just that they're not looking to build a hundred thousand dollar pool. They're building sixty thousand dollar pools. We're close. Uh, we're hoping to be able to announce something in the next year and a half. Uh, but for right now, we're still focused on you know the original ledge lounger. Uh, and providing that. And again, it is quality. It is long lasting. We we actually have 30 units over in the Golden Nugget in Lake Charles. Uh, and if you can imagine how much use, the, use those get during the summer season, they've been in that pool now for over three years and they have not had to replace them. Wow. So I, I would challenge any cool. residential environment that these chases shouldn't last at least 10 years, especially after what we've seen over there at the, the Golden Nugget. Right. And you have to have like, kind of a specific design of a pool, like a Baja step or something like that in order for one of these units to actually be in the pool. So your kind of market's a little bit smaller. Am I correct on that? You are. You're, you're absolutely correct. The market's growing, certainly. Uh, more and more people are building tanning ledges, uh, number one, because they're just becoming a trend. But number two, obviously, because we, we try and market ahead of when somebody builds a pool, so they make sure they build the pool appropriately to accommodate our products. Um, but you are, it is a limited market. You know, it's not something that um, a lot of people are going to want to take on because they're not going to sell millions, millions of units or hundreds of thousands of units per se. Uh, and that's another reason for the price being what it is. You know, if we sold a uh, hundred thousand chases every year, then certainly they could be at a lower price point, but you just, we're just not moving a ton of ton of volume uh, for it to make sense. So as people, you know, question the price, these are all things that they obviously certainly most likely don't consider. Right. And if they can't afford that, you do sell a beautiful swan that I saw on the website. It's very affordable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, we, we do swan. sell a swan, a blow up swan. Uh, you know, I, 
we're surprised at how many we we sold last year. Uh, a lot of it is just, uh, you know, that's a great piece for social media. Uh, that's a great piece to, you know, when we're doing a photo shoot, uh, put some models on it, take a picture of it. You know, we're we're constantly uh, wanting to make sure that we're staying up to trend in our branding and our awareness. Um, so while it's not a focus for us, you won't see us do a ton of floats, but we want to do things that keep us hip and keep us uh, fresh and upfront uh, from a from a market perspective. Most definitely. And can't wait to talk about that because that is a huge piece of what you guys do. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about this real quick because I know that this is going to be really important for anybody listening that might have a really good idea and they just don't know where to start. Um, and we'd love to hear kind of whatever you can about the process of developing this product because you know, there's so much to it. You either, you know, some people draw it on a napkin and then they bring it to the computer and it's just kind of the R&D um, part of the process. What did that look like, you know, kind of a bird's eye view on the process of getting, you know, this manufactured? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I certainly appreciate it. Um, obviously, I don't want to give up all my secrets here. No, I'm, I'm Come kidding. on, Chris. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, look, I think first and foremost is do something. Uh, we used this term back in college when I was, uh, leading a sales team, make it happen, right? Make it happen. I mean, those three simple words, um, let's make that even simpler. Do something right every day. Do one thing that moves your idea forward. Pick up one, pick up the phone one time and make one phone call to ask somebody one question that's going to make you more knowledgeable or more experienced than you were in the past. I forgot who said it, uh, and I, I want to say it was once again Mark Cuban, but how many times have you ever called somebody and asked for help and they've said no? People don't really say no when you're asking them for help. That is very cer- true. Certainly if my competitor calls me and asks me for help, I'm going to be pretty reluctant, right? It's going to be, yeah, maybe I don't want to give the guy help because I'm going to help him wipe me out. You know, Certainly I don't mean that. But you know, if you know... If, let's just say you're questioning what kind of material your product's going to be made out of. Do you sit there and let it stump you as to every day, oh, I can't figure it out, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know? Or do you pick up the phone and call somebody who sells aluminum and you say, hey, here's my idea. This is what I want to make. Is aluminum a good material for this? Now, if they say yes, don't just stop there and go to them, right? Then you need to call somebody up that makes something out of carbon steel and say, hey, is this a good product to be made out of carbon steel? Or then you call somebody up and you say, is this a good product to be made out of plastic? Call four or five people that make four or five different types of materials and ask that question four or five times and get your answers back. Do some research on Google and see, you know, what is carbon fiber good for? What is plastic good for? What is this good for? Or type in. Um, plastic manufacturing. I think too many times, my point here is, is too many times people get stuck on the end result and they get overwhelmed by the end result. Could you imagine, and I hate to use such an analogy, but could you imagine if the slave that was putting the blocks on the pyramids was responsible for the end result? (laughs) They would have been extremely overwhelmed and they never would have wanted to put the first block down because they wouldn't be thinking about laying this block. They'd be thinking about the finished result and they would just be too overwhelmed to ever accomplish it. So a lot of complaining, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, look, <laughs> look, I have a four-year-old son and last night 
he dropped a bag of Nerf bullets for his Nerf guns, right? And of course, my my father, being the the grandfather that he is, or yeah, the grandfather that he is, he bought him like one thousand Nerf bullets. Like, <laughs> like what four year old needs a thousand Nerf bullets? Well, he's got a bag of Nerf bullets, and he's walking around the house with them, and he drops this bag, and the Nerf bullets scatter all over the place. And I said, Levi, you need to pick those up. And he looks at me, he looks up at me and he's totally overwhelmed because he sees a room full of Nerf bullets. And I said, Levi, once you pick up one, there's going to be only 999 left. And then once you pick up two, there's only going to be only, you know, 998 left. So just keep picking them up and you're going to get there. Because he's never experienced that kind of thing before, he was so overwhelmed by it. But once he finished that task and he got them all picked up, then the next task that he's going to have like that, he's going to realize, well, it's not such a big deal, right? Until 10,000 fall. And then he's going to, man, that's overwhelming, but let me get it done. Well, each task that you do sets your your stage for the next task can be bigger and bigger and bigger and better and harder, and you're willing to accomplish it. So I know I kind of ran off on a tangent there, but my point ultimately comes down to don't be overwhelmed by the end result. Focus on today's task. Focus on one thing you need to do to move your idea forward versus the end idea. Uh, and if you do that, eventually one day you're going to pick up your head and you're going to realize, man, I'm about to launch this product. And then one day you're going to pick up your head and you're going to go, wow, I never would have imagined that I would have sold so many of these things. Um, because look, if I, if I knew what I knew now back then, certainly I could have done it differently. But I also could look back and say, man, I would be so overwhelmed <laughs> with the amount of work that's had to go into this. Um, it, it's just amazing because if you think it's going to be hard, it's not. It's going to be really freaking hard, right? It's always going to be harder than what you think or else everybody would be doing it. You know, if it was easy, everybody would own a business and everybody, you know, if it's easy to be successful, everybody would be doing it. And that's why not everybody's doing it. So don't get stuck on the, on the end result. Focus on today's task. Now, that doesn't mean don't strategize. You know, that doesn't mean don't look to the future and imagine what it could be, because that's where you get your inspiration from, right? That's where you get your excitement to keep driving forward. So you got to stay in tune to that, but don't let that slow you down. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious, even when you from when you had the idea and you're like, you know what, I think I can make a business out of this. Did you structure it out? I mean, did you have some type of game plan? Did you have a business plan where like, you know what, I'm going to hit up these people. I'm going to do this. And because you said it took about, what, two and a half years or yep. so. Yep. Um, did you kind of, you know, nothing is perfect and you don't know where this is all going. But, you know, you still had another job at the time, I'm assuming, and having to, you know, afford, you know, the R&D and all the different things that you did. But was it just like, just do something, even if I'm just you know, putting 10 minutes in it to this day and then I can't do anything the rest of the week. I'm just going to do what I can when I can. And that's just what it is. Cause I think a lot of people sometimes they're just kind of like, man, if I can't go all in and just sit and focus on it for 15 hours every single day, then I don't want nothing to do with it. So was that kind of, you know, your mindset on it was I'm just going to do what I can and make the best of my time and kind of prioritize. Cause if you don't prioritize properly, you're going to be doing, you know, a million other things when you don't even have A, B and C done. Sure. Sure. Uh, no, look, that's, um, 
I think it's a challenge everybody faces. So uh, with my situation, um, I was building and selling swimming pools. And fortunately, I had a schedule where, you know, if I got a lead, I, I need to go. I need to go on that call. But I could I could rearrange my day how I saw fit as long as I got my clients, the designs and the bids back in time that they required them in. Um, so I had a, a pretty lax schedule uh, that allowed me to focus on Ledge Lounger while still working um, on custom design pools. And in fact, up until, like I said, about a year ago, I was still selling and designing swimming pools. Um, a year ago, Ledge Lounger had uh, probably 14 employees. Um, today we have 35 employees, just kind of putting it into perspective. Uh, so I was, I was running a company that had 14 employees while I was still out designing and selling. Uh, I didn't actually slow down in custom design pools. It was probably later than I should have, um, but I didn't want to be dependent on LedgeLounger's income. I wanted LedgeLounger's income to go back into the business. So instead of working, you know, 60 hours a week on LedgeLounger, I worked 75 hours a week and I put 15 hours into custom design pools. Look, to beat the other guy, to invent a business, to start a business, you're going to have to be willing to work harder than the other people. If you think that you're going to maintain your current job at 40 hours and sometime in that 40 hours, you're going to also go start a business, then once again, everybody would be starting businesses. Right. Yeah. Right. It's the people that are willing to put in the extra time, the extra effort, out hustle everybody around them that are going to have a fair chance in that. And even then they're only going to have a 10% chance or a, a 2% chance of being successful starting their own business because hustle is only one fraction of the, of the recipe for successfully starting your business. Um, but it is a critical one. Um, so for me, no, I didn't stop selling pools. Now you got to ask yourself what kind of job you had. Had I had an eight to five job working for somebody else, it certainly would have been a lot harder to start ledge launcher. Cause then, you know, at five o'clock businesses are closed. I can't pick up the phone and go get advice from manufacturers and marketing companies and all this other stuff. Right. I'd have to do it after hours, which presents a problem. But if you have an idea and you want to start a business, the first thing I say is position yourself in your current job so that you can do so. So I'm not saying quit your job and go start your business. Cause I think personally, I think that's a mistake. Unless you've got an, an idea that has a crazy amount of intellectual property that you can go out and raise by with angel investors, you know, a million dollars to help kick your business off. But those ideas are few and few and few far between. I mean, there's it's harder and harder today. It's harder and harder every day to come up with a unique idea like that. That's going to have solid uh, IP you know, intellectual property that people are going to invest in before it's making any money. So my what I would say is position yourself in the best possible job to be able to work on a future project. But again, that's going to require hustle. Why? Because any jobs that you're not being accounted for from eight to five are going to probably be something more like a sales job. Right. So I can which is never easy. The pressure on salespeople is always high. So. I can go do an eight to five job and not have time to start something, or I can go do a job where I don't have an eight to five schedule. Again, now my income is more um, tied to what it is I do every day, how hard I work every day. And then I can utilize that daytime to go out and hustle and potentially start my own business. So look at the job you're currently in 
and think about, is there a better job I can do, which would allow me a little bit more freedom and flexibility to go out and start my business that I want to start? Um, that's my advice for anybody that's that's currently in a job and they want to start a job and they just don't know how to take the first step. First step is evaluate your current situation. Right. Thanks, Chris. So I personally really want to know, just because I've sat in your guys' chairs before and they're just so freaking comfortable, how much time did you spend just kind of on the on the ergonomics of the chair? Because you can tell when you sit in it. I don't know if that was something that just progressed with time. And I in you know, us making these questions, I started thinking about that. And I'm like, man, be really difficult to kind of make a piece and just like constantly, it's like some people might not ever be able to get a product out because they're like, ah, you know, it's not quite there. We need to shave a little bit off this. You know what I mean? Like somebody making a surfboard or something. So yeah. how, how important was that piece in uh, this whole puzzle? Yeah. So it's such a something we talk about on a regular basis around the office, especially with my product development staff or team. When is something shippable? When is it good enough to ship? By the time it's good enough to ship, it's too late. And what I mean by that is if you sit back and you just perfect and perfect and perfect and you never release, then you could pretty much never finish a product or never take a product to market. I mean, could you imagine the iPhone? Like, when is it good, good enough to ship? <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. If you had this mentality that it had to be absolutely perfect before you shipped it, you would never ship it. Because technology is changing every day uh, and you would never bring a product to market. So first point is you have to, at some point in time, you have to say, hey, this is version one and I'm comfortable letting this go to market. You know, for us in the beginning, we did some basic research on ergonomics, um, you know, the average size individual, because to you, the chase might be extremely comfortable. But look, I'm not afraid to say it live on a podcast that to some people, it's not comfortable at all. Well, certainly, we have to develop and design the chase to fit the average individual, the average person out there. So we had to say, what's our range? Is it going to be a person that's 5'8 to 6 foot? Or is it going to be a person that's 5'4 to 5'8? Well, there is information and stats and data and ergonomics. Uh, you can simply do an online survey or, excuse me, an online search and find that information. So we, you know, we took that in consideration. Um, we also, you know, made some quick type prototype type things and laid in them. Uh, but what was more important was the way that you interact with the water, uh, making sure that it was going to be low enough to the ground where you're actually, when you're in the water, you're not just, uh, you're actually laying in the water. You have water on your butt, uh, on your body. Um, some of those things were a little bit more important. I don't picture a ledge launder as something anybody's going to go lay in for two hours. Right. I'm laying it for 30 minutes. I'm going to go out and swim in the pool. I'm going to come back. I'm laying it for 10, 15 minutes. I'm going to get up. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. The fact of the matter is it doesn't have a cushion on it. Right. And any kind of cushion that's soft is going to grow algae in the water because anything for it to be soft, it has to be open cell. And if it's open cell, then water and mildew is going to build up in it. So, you know, we had to we had to accept the reality of this is going to be a hard plastic that's in the pool. So it was really important for it to have a contour that related to the average body style and type. Um, we also had this to sacrifice because we did have some people sit in our original prototypes and say, hey, this doesn't fit me well. Well, you know, I'm sorry that it doesn't fit you well, but we have to we have to hit the average market here uh, because there's only so many people outside of the average. And the more and more you go outside of the average, the less the less people it's going to be comfortable for. So, 
you know, we did we did do our ergonomic research. Um, we actually are every day trying to figure out, or not trying to figure out, but are figuring out how to make it more comfortable, how to make it better. Uh, and we're excited for the time that's going to come when we can release version two um, and uh, see how much more it is. It's more comfortable for people of multiple different shapes and sizes. Very exciting stuff, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, super cool. Um, I'm just curious. Do you have the original drawings still or how did you draw What did you draw them on? Do you have those? I did. I, I do. I, uh, I drew it in Pulse Studio, actually. Oh. Um, it was the very first program that I drew it in. Uh, Pulse Studio, at the time, I needed to take it from Pulse Studio and AutoCAD. Um, so I, I worked with some of my manufacturers and we brought it into to AutoCAD at the time. I actually still have the original prototype. Um, it, uh, it's made out of uh, metal tubing uh, with a sheet metal on top of it. And then we went to a rhino lining facility because uh, we actually thought that's how we were going to produce it. We went to a rhino lining facility <laughs> that rhino lined the back of trucks and we had them spray the whole, the whole thing. Um, and you know, again, that's, that goes back to that whole thing. Like do one thing first, you know, you don't, I didn't know how to do it, but I knew what I could do. And so I did that. And then that led me to the next thing, which led me to the next thing. And then I felt confident that I had a product I could take to market. That's really cool. What do you, you think didn't... in that whole process was probably, I hate to say the word failure, but something that you really, it was probably one of the biggest things that you learned from in that whole, just kind of R and D process. You know, Failure is such a I, – I, I'm glad you said that because it brings up a good point. But why do we why do we frown so much upon the word failure? Why is everybody so afraid of failing? Uh, because a lot of times they're afraid the way other people are going to see them. Yep, 100%. There are no successful entrepreneurs out there that haven't failed. Uh, it's just that you didn't get to see them fail. Right. Um, they weren't as popular as they are today. Uh, and it made them who they are. In fact, anybody that that uh, has a hard time with failure, watch the Elon Musk video where everybody is telling him how what he's trying to do is never going to be accomplished. And there are some of the smartest engineers in the world telling him that there's no way he's going to be able to do the things that he's already done and overcome. So if anything, to me, what failure does is it makes success that much more sweet. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Because if you succeed the first time you do it, how, how, you know, how much pleasure are you going to get in succeeding? But if you succeed after you've failed five times, number one, you've learned a lot more. And number two, the success is going to be that much better. Yeah. You probably really only fail if you just stop. That's it. That's it. That's really it. Yeah. You know, now, now at the same time, don't be so, closed minded that when you do see the need that, Hey, this idea is not going to be successful or, Hey, I've done my market research. I've given it my all. Hey, I need to stop moving forward with this idea. You know, some people just, they're so, so, so confident in what they're doing that they don't listen to any outside sources or they don't look at their sales and say, man, I've tried so hard and I, I haven't sold a single one of these. It's it's not that you failed on that one. It's just time to take what you've learned and move on to your next idea. You right. know, don't get so caught up in making something a success that might never be a success. Yeah, you have your blinders on. And I see that quite a bit. And what I notice is they get so, so stuck on their product because they want to see it come to life. And it's something that they could use, but they haven't done the market research. And they don't understand that there's not really a big calling for it. 
And I think that me personally, or we think that you really got to pay attention to the times. You got to pay attention to, you know, what, you know, people actually want and need, because if you're making something for you, then you should have just made one or two for you. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's not a great business model. Nothing can be a business if nobody else wants anything to do with it. And we're so lucky to have the internet and, you know, you could hop on your phone right now and Google just about anything. I mean, for the last, what, five, 10 years, that's what we've been able to do. Oh, you got a question? You can get corrected by, you know, somebody that's not very smart by, oh, no, I just looked that up. That's wrong. It yeah. was actually 1897 or, you know, whatever. Like <laughs> yeah. And, and case studies are so easy now. I mean, you put up a little survey on Facebook or, you know, you message a hundred of your friends on Facebook and you ask them what they think or what their thoughts are. It, now, it's important to, to, to filter through their answers and don't just take it all so literal. But, uh, you know, you got to be innovative and you got you to gotta think about how their answers can modify your concept or your idea. I mean, there's plenty of people that started businesses with one product thinking they were going to be really successful. And that led them to develop something totally different in that product is 90% of what their business is today. Right. So it's, it's all about keeping an open mind. Uh, and like you said, just, just don't put your blinders on, be very open, um, be very open to what people are telling you and don't just, don't just listen to them, watch them, right? Go out and watch people interact with your product. That typically will tell you more than if you ask somebody. Um, usually when we ask questions, so we were talking about this today, right? So we're uh, we're pushing a lot of patio furniture now. We, we've developed it in-house, manufacturing it in-house, and we're selling it. Well, we want to do some market research because we want to understand when people buy patio furniture. So we one thing we want to know is, are people willing to buy patio furniture online versus going to a store and sitting in it and, f- and laying in it and touching it and feeling it. Well, certainly our strategy is going to be different based on what we hear. If people say, I don't want to buy it online, then we're going to heavily focus on getting furniture stores, pool builders to put our products in the showrooms, <coughs> excuse me, so that people can sit in it and feel it and touch it. Whereas and if people say, hey, I'm willing to buy it online, then we might focus a little bit more towards online advertising, that sort of thing. So What's critical here is the way we ask the question. I don't want to say to a consumer, um, are you afraid to buy patio furniture online because you can't touch and feel it? Their natural answer to that is going to be, yes, I am afraid, right? But if you simply say, would you buy patio furniture online? That's so much of a better question because you're not alluding to the fact that now you won't be able to touch and feel it and sit in it. Right. So you gotta you gotta think about the way your questions are asked when you are doing surveys that you're not guiding somebody to an answer. Mm-hmm. Or as in when you watch somebody with your product, um, you're not guiding them to an answer. You know, when you go out and you ask closing the questions. So if I'm if I'm on a res- if I'm at a resort and I'm watching the way people are interacting with our chase, uh, you know, one thing we learned quickly is you can't turn over and lay on your stomach on a chase. You know? Because if you do, you might drown yourself, right? Have you but seen you people could... actually trying to do that? We have. We yeah. have. They we quickly learn that they turn around and their legs go where their head was and their head goes where their the bottom of your knees are. Uh and so in our marketing, we need to make sure that we apply some of those images to our marketing because 
just watching them in it. Whereas if we would have asked that question, nobody would have ever told us that. How many how many prototypes did you end up doing before you got your one that was ready to go to market? So I would say that we probably were on prototype three. Uh, so not too many. Um, but uh, look, a, a chair is a chair is a chair. A chase is a chase. <laughs> I mean, the human body has been similar to the same for the last uh, 40 years. Certainly, you know, people have bigger butts or smaller butts or skinnier or, or, or bigger or whatever it might be. But um, the data is just there, you know. So if you're doing the right research um, and asking yourself the right questions, you shouldn't have to make 100 of them. Uh, just as we're, we're making patio furniture, right? There, there's a reason why tables are the same height they are all the time. Now, that doesn't mean you don't question the height of a table, but you certainly do your research and you look at what is the average height of a table in the marketplace because you don't want to you don't want to develop a chase lounge chair that's you know eight foot long when it only needs to be six foot long because you know humans aren't eight feet unless you're Yao Ming or something like that. Man, that just that just aged me. Yao Ming, yeah, that's Yao rock. Ming. <laughs> that's rockets that's awesome. from like yes. 1996. That is awesome. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, I have you know just want to get one question out and then we'll move in move on from this topic. But I mean, is there just like one story you can share with us because they're so valuable of something that happened? You know. Every, especially manufacturer, you know, some kind of product um, has had some type of hardships where funds dry up or, um, you know, there's something wrong with the vehicles where they can't transport material anymore or, you know, their uh, their partner decides to go another way. Is there kind of like a, a story you can share with us of something that happened and you just kind of pushed through it and just, you know, made the best of the situation? Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that sticks out is in our early days, um, we uh, we were growing uh, faster than we could possibly keep up with. I and mean, we just couldn't hire people fast enough. We couldn't, we couldn't create our product fast enough. So our lead time started increasing. And as our lead time started increasing, you know, we had to uh, figure out how we were going to produce product fast enough. Um, one is you certainly have to diversify uh, the locations that are making your product, the facilities, uh, because if you have all your eggs in one basket and something happens to that basket, then, you know, you, you're going to suffer your whole business. Uh, so one thing I wanted to do was go out and make some more molds so we can produce some more products. And just from my lack of experience, we uh, ha- I hadn't really made a whole lot of molds, especially this type of mold. And these molds are, you know, forty to $80,000 a piece. And I made two of them. Uh, off of some of our very original drawings and unfortunately uh, it didn't match my existing uh, product that was in the marketplace and uh, I had a decision I could either continue making products on those molds uh, but then I'd have the, the the possibility of having different products in the market or a consumer getting two different products that look slightly different you know some people might have never even noticed the difference um, or I could scrap those uh, which was an $80,000 expense at uh, a very early stage in our business to make sure that our quality and um, just just our, you know, the products matching and our message to the consumer. So virtually we had to extend our lead times, uh, wait until we uh, sold a lot more products so that we could capture more revenue so that we then had enough money to go and buy or go and build those molds again, but do them right the first time around. Those molds still sit in the back of my warehouse. Uh, I see them every day. 
It was a really, really expensive $80,000 education. But learning from that, you know, now I have a very watchful eye over any time that we're going to go out and make a mold, making sure that we're doing our due diligence and we're taking it serious before that big spin. Um, but I also have some ideas of how we can use those molds in the future. And that, that's a little bit of our strategy. Uh, so, you know, it's when those trials and, you know, when those situations come up, you've got to, you got to keep an open mind. And, and I like to say, you got to work your angles, right? Um, at that point in time, it, by the time we got it all done, it was late in the season and we had some time before we, we weren't able to, to shorten our lead times that year, but we were certainly able to do it going into the next year. Uh, that it's a good example of just everybody's going to make mistakes. Some of them are going to be real expensive. It's just a matter of reacting to those mistakes and, and learning from them and making sure you don't make the same mistakes over and over. I don't know if it's a great answer for, for really what your question was. Um, no, it was really good. Yeah, sometimes, that was really good. <clears throat> sometimes losing, you know, valuable members of your staff um, is probably is probably one where you you just wonder, man, how are we going to get through this? This person knows our business in and out. Um, but you, what what you realize is, again, the person that you hired back then compared to the person you need now. Now you can go back to the to the job opening and you can list all the things that you didn't realize you need to list before and make sure you. You hire somebody this time around with more experience, better experience, and probably you can afford somebody that's, you know, pay somebody a little bit more today than I could two years ago that can help drive our business forward. So I don't think there's anything that could happen to us that we wouldn't learn from and figure out a better way to move forward. For sure. So when at that point, when after you got, you know, through the design and getting a product that was actually marketable, when did Ledge Launcher like officially become a business? And then what kind of steps did you take to make it become a business instead of an idea? You know, when does it become a business? I mean, it comes a business when you register it with every, whatever, <laughs> That's true. you know, tax authority, <laughs> I, I guess, in the terms of what is the definition of a business. You know, it becomes a business when in your mind you want to call it a business. What I mean by that is, you know, the first year, Ledgelander made $368,000 in revenue. Uh, actually, the first year, Ledgelander made like $30,000 in revenue. Uh, now, of course, we didn't make any money because our expenses were more than $30,000. The second year, we made $363,000, so $368,000 in revenue. Uh, we grew and we grew and we grew and we doubled and we doubled and we doubled. And every time, I was impressed with where we were going, but I still wasn't satisfied. Um Still not satisfied today because I look at the opportunity and it is so, so great. So big business, small business, medium business, all these terms in the industry, right? What's more important, I guess, than anything else is are you doing what it is you've set out to achieve to do? Because nonprofit organizations are business. They don't necessarily make money, but they serve a purpose. Um, so really, how do we define a business? We and how do we find it being a successful business? Well, we accomplished what it was our goal to do. We we are evaluating our mission and our goal every year because as we grow, we're serving more and more clients. And ultimately, we want to make sure we're providing products to the clients that we're providing services and products to clients uh, that they need, that our clients need. Now, as our client base expand, it continues to expand, then our services need to continue to expand. But you obviously got to stay hyper-focused. So, I'm kind of getting away from your answer here, but 
the business is a business as soon as you want to decide it's a business. And the sooner you decide it's a business, the more successful you're going to be. The sooner you treat your employees like people that are going to help you grow your business and be successful with your business, the sooner you're going to be successful. So, you know, a business to me is a business the first day that you take one step forward to making it generate revenue or making it generate the result of which that you set out to create. I don't think it's fair to say that you have to sell any certain number uh, to be successful or to call yourself a business. Sure. I mean, let's face it. When I when I was pulling wagons around the neighborhood selling, washing cars, I had a business. Right. Yep. Did I did I have a business card and did I have a title? And, and at the time, was I <laughs> was I registered with the state or the the city? No, I wasn't. Right. But uh, at a you know eleven twelve years old, I had a business because. I was providing a service to a client that needed my service, and, uh, and and that's ultimately what made it a business. Nice. While we're on the topic of business, do you remember that first time we found Jobber? Oh, heck yeah. Dude, <laughs> that was an amazing day. I'll tell you right now because we had those giant freaking decals that we had made up for the brother's window, mm-hmm. and – I think we made an attempt at putting those stickers on the windows, did we? Yeah. Yeah. So that did not go over well. Went on Yelp and we looked up somebody to put the decals on. And sure enough, we found somebody, hit them up, and they're like, well, what's your email? So shot them over the email. We gave them the dimensions. They sent over a quote. Boom. Boom. What do we do next? Pay the deposit. Pay the deposit because that's the kind of customer that we are. We pay deposits. So anyway... Pay the deposit. We're blown away on how professional this thing looks because the social icons are at the bottom and top. They got their pretty little logo up top, and we just like that kind of stuff. So we ended up working with them. They came over, did the work, super professional. After that, what did we do? Pay the invoice. Pay the invoice. That's how we roll. (laughs) So we paid the invoice, and bada-bing, bada-boom. Complete. Scroll down. See Jobber. The rest is history. We start using Jobber. If you want to try Jobber out, you can go to getjobber.com backslash pool chasers. That's getjobber.com backslash pool chasers. You can get 20% off your first six months and a 14-day trial. So take advantage of that while you can. Try it out. We promise you guys won't be disappointed. Was your dad your first employee? Or employer or employee? Employee. Oh, yeah. The first guess, one at Ledge. <laughs> I guess that's an interesting way to look at it. Uh I wouldn't necessarily say that. Um, he certainly was a partner, uh, but he never per se worked for Ledge Lounger. Uh, my first employee was a high school, excuse me, a college intern that helped me get our product on social media, right? I mean, the, the very first, one of the very first things you do after you develop your product is you have to create a demand for your product. Don't assume that the demand is just going to be there, right? So, Fortunately, I was able to put some chases on pools that I built, take pictures of them. And then because I was still building and selling pools, I would utilize some of my money that I made off of selling and building pools and pay this individual to go post it on social media website uh, on mostly Facebook then, right? I mean, that's the beauty of it is in the olden days, if you want to start a business, you got to have you got to have a good amount of money to get in front of anybody with any kind of advertising. In today's world, you can spend $20 on a Facebook ad then all of a sudden have your, your, your business or your idea in front of, you know, a thousand people, yep. which is pretty, pretty powerful. 
So what kind of products are available today? What Maybe just which ones are the most popular? Um, you guys kind of have anything brewing for 2019? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when it comes to most popular today, it's obviously still our in-water chase. Um, we intend for that to be you know, a core product for a very long time to come. However, we are obviously focused on diversifying. Um, we'll be releasing a day bed. I believe y'all saw it at the International Pool and Spa Show. I'm really excited about it. Um, it's more or less a cabana bed that can go in the water or on the patio. Um, imagine a, a big bed with uh, walls around three different sides with a shade up on top. So you can, you can move the shade up and down. You can get yourself some blockage from the sun or some relief from the sun if you need to. You know, I feel like that's a, a big thing for the residential pool market is shade. Mm-hmm. You know, traditionally we've done it with umbrellas. Uh, that's fine, but what's the next thing? You know, how, yeah. Can how you come... stop putting big trees around pools now? <laughs> <laughs> I seriously, yeah. that but... is like the biggest thing. Yeah. Like, oh, I want these trees because I like the shade. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, it makes the life your life so much harder than that. <laughs> you saw the picture this summer. I put a ten by ten canopy in my pool. Oh yeah, <laughs> because there's literally no shade. And if you know anything about Arizona, it gets like 110, 115 degrees out here. And my kids don't care for whatever reason. They're like, no, we just want to be swimming. I'm like, Man, it is hot as hell out here. And I've been outside enough. Yeah. You know, so I just wheel this thing out at this huge 10 by 10 canopy. And like, I've like extended one legs in, one over here's in, the other two are short and they're on the, on the cool deck. And it just, it looked hideous, but man, I was, the sun was out of my face for a minute. So, yeah. but you know what? That, everything we've just talked about, I mean, that's how it starts, right? Is there was some pain, like you felt pain because you had a need for something and it was causing you stress, if you will, because you couldn't go relax in your swimming pool and not get burnt, (laughs) you know, not get the worst suntan in the world. So you figured out, Hey, I can build this. So the next trick, the next step of that is trying to figure out how to do it efficiently and effectively so that it's easy for a homeowner. Yeah. And if you can master that and then you can figure out how to take it to market, market it and sell it, you know, I feel like Ledge Lounger, we've now gained the experience on how to do that. And now it's a matter of time of finding other products that that are causing pain points for, for our customers and being able to deliver them to market the same way we delivered the Ledge Lounger to market. Um, now, fortunately, we already have an established brand. We already have an established consumer base. So hopefully it's going to be a little bit easier, but I never like to use the word easy because no matter what, it's, it's always hard to convince somebody that a product is going to work well for them uh, and that they're, they're going to have success with our products, no matter what it is. So yeah, you still have to show them how to, or still have to get them to spend their money on it. <laughs> absolutely. And yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a lot harder to get somebody to spend their money than their company's money. So when it talks, yep. when you talk about a B2C product versus a B2B product, um, it's really easy to spend my company's money on on new products or new things that we need here at the company, but it's a lot tougher to get people to convince them to spend their own personal money on things for their backyard. So, but you know, I, I think that's you know one one thing we discussed is is marketing and in the brand and the lifestyle imagery that we do uh, pitch. You know, it's critical that whatever product we do have, we don't just sell a plastic lounge chair. We sell an experience. We sell the idea of having a resort in your own backyard. In the pool industry, uh, used to do that really, really, really well. Uh, the RV industry, you know, we always compare the pool industry to the RV industry when we're looking at 
consumer spend and that sort of thing. It's not necessarily about the chair. It's not about the chase. It's not about the pool. It's about the experience. It's about getting in the pool with your family and spending time with your family or getting away from the sun, uh, cooling off and that sort of thing. And that's, I think that's one thing we've done well here at, at Ledgelander is we've really, really shown people how to have a resort in their backyard, just a little bit more money uh, to add to the expense, the overall expense of your swimming pool and get that much more of an experience out of it. I think it's a really cool shift in the pool industry in general. I mean, with all the TV shows and different stuff, trying to preach that, I think you're right, like going after that backyard experience, the whole idea of you don't have to leave home, you can do this, you know, you just spend a little bit more money, but like then you're then you're saving money in the long run by not going to Disney World and, you know, staying at these huge resorts. You're just, you know, your time with your family is more of on an everyday basis rather than once one week out of the year where you go you know, party at a resort. So it's cool to kind of pitch that idea. And I think getting people to really see the industry and see what we're doing as that, you know, needs to come more to light. And I think everybody's doing a pretty good job at pushing that. So it's a cool idea to, you know, say, Hey, you know, enjoy this in your backyard year round, as opposed to one week or two weeks out of the year. That's right. Without a doubt. I, I think, I think we're all, everybody in the pool industry is challenging each other. I think we have been an industry that's been pretty behind in times as far as marketing and kind of being on the leading edge. And I think we're really starting to see that change as you look at people developing their brand and their imaging. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the people that you wouldn't expect to start get on Facebook and, and Instagram and start moving those forward, even though a lot of people might have a, a small amount of followers still. But they're all really making an effort to to get out in front of the in front of the curve. For sure. Yeah. And you know, just back to your your products. I mean, I think it's really cool how much you guys pay attention to things because we saw your uh your guys' booth, that huge booth in Orlando of two thousand seventeen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two thousand seventeen. Okay. And you guys I think had a new kind of uh extension for the chase and it was where you could put your uh iPad in or a book or something like that. And it you know, it folds over and you sled it inside and I'm like, dude. I want one of those in my office. I wouldn't mind just kind of lounging back and, you know, looking at, uh, you know, YouTube video or a Kindle or, you know, something like that. And that's really smart because you think about, okay, what do you do if you're by the pool? Even if you're tanning by the pool, it's freaking boring. You're just sitting there. Okay. Well, what would people like to do? Yeah. Oh, be on their iPad. It's hot as shit out here. Oh, maybe we should put it in this little slot. You could watch it, read it, yeah. whatever. And I'm getting tan. This is a great day. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, if you're at a resort, you're trying to look at your iPhone or look at your book and you're trying to lay out, you know, you're you're typically laying on your back and you're looking straight up. Yep. You don't necessarily have a pillow underneath your head. Um, so you're kind of holding your phone in front of the sun to block the sun from sitting, hitting your face so you can read your phone or listen to your phone or watch a movie or do this or do that. You know, with our products, the challenge is, is now you're laying in the water. So when we developed the products, water iPhones weren't waterproof. Uh, electronics aren't waterproof. Obviously, your book's not waterproof. So we wanted to create a way that you had a place to put your stuff while laying in the water. And a, a lot of that stems back to don't just bring a product to market, but understand how people are going to utilize the product. Understand, think, imagine yourself in the environment they're going to use it on, use it in and apply those things to it. So we have on our headrest pillow, we have a little pocket in the back of our headrest pillow. I can't tell you how many people, how many times people put that headrest pillow and they put the pocket in the front. It's meant to go in the back of the headrest pillow where you can slide your hotel key card or your keys or your phone. 
you want to listen to your headphones, uh, you want to plug, slide your iPhone back there and put your headphones in. The whole idea is if you don't have, of course, when we developed that product, we didn't have a side table. So we didn't have anything that you could put your iPhone on or anything on. And then with the shade, yeah, we wanted to create something that blocked the, the sun out of your face. So you didn't have to necessarily have an umbrella. But at the same time, you could lay back and relax and look up into this. We call it a, a media window and view your, read your book or watch your iPhone or, or watch your iPad, watch a movie, listen to a, a song, whatever it might be. Uh, and, you know, those are the features and benefits that obviously help define us differently than any competition that we might have out there. And that's stuff that we're always focusing on is we're trying to always innovate our product one step forward and not just accepting it that this is the way it's always been done. We're just going to do it this way. Sure. And can you talk to us a little bit about maybe the fabric? So I asked uh, one of the builders um, here in Scottsdale that we actually had on an episode. His name is Trevor Tipton with Artisan Elements and uh, built some really cool pools. And we went to his facility probably about six months ago. And he had a really cool display with, you know, ledge lounger, um, kind of just a booklet with all the different sure. um, chairs and stuff like that on there. But I was talking to him, letting him know that you were going to be on the show. And he said, uh, don't forget to talk about the marine grade fabric versus kind of the regular, you know, kind of umbrella material. Um, so it'd be kind of cool to maybe talk about, you know, what can your product withstand it can really sit in the water every single day. Should you pull it out? Are you going to get any kind of, you know, residue um, or anything like that on the equipment? Or if you sure. do, how do you get it off? Sure. So, I mean, what one of the biggest issues in the pool is calcium, right? I mean, y'all know that. Y'all mm -hmm. <laughs> are service companies. Um, when it comes to waterline, when it comes to anywhere on the waterline, above the waterline, you're going to get calcium buildup, you know. Um, you certainly have to make any products that are made to go in the water uh, durable to the calcium, durable to any of the chemicals. Fortunately, we utilize a material that uh, is where a lot of – it's the same material they store acid in. They store a lot of different kind of really harsh chemicals in. So we knew the, the material was going to withstand the pool environment. Uh, the color pigments and what colors we use are pretty critical. Uh, we have some specialized batches of color pigments that can withstand – uh, the UV resistance, uh, all of our stuff is UV 16, all of our resin material, UV 16, which means it's going to last a good nine years before it even really starts to begin to fade. Um, if it does fade, it's going to feed fade ever so lightly. You're really not going to notice it in any short period of time. But again, that's, that's going to be a ways out. What the UV rating defines is 16,000 hours of 90 degree overhead sunlight. So in other words, in the testing facility, they're testing as if the sun was straight above shining directly down on it, 90 degrees. Um, that's what's going, that's where it's tested at 16,000 hours. Now the sun is rarely ever at 90 degrees in the sky. You know, in the summer, the winter, it's off to the side, uh, middle of the day, it's probably not even at 90 degrees in the middle of the sky. So that's the rating on our actual resins. Um, you have to watch out for calcium buildup, just like anything else. The more often you clean it, the easier it's going to be to get off. The longer you wait to clean it, the harder it's going to be to clean. Calcium can stick to virtually anything, even frost-proof waterline tile, right? We've all seen that. Um, so we encourage people to clean it. Now, certainly you can pick certain colors that the calcium is less likely to show up on. Um, and that's pretty much what we recommend, especially in commercial environments. Um, when it comes to fabrics and cushions, I feel like that's one area that we might, we'll probably have a lot of opportunity to be very successful in the market. You know, a lot of people, material for cushions is very expensive. 
and people see furniture and they they wonder why furniture is so expensive a lot of the times it's because of the cushions so when you look at our pillows or our sectionals or patio furniture first you got to think about what is the fabric what type of fabric is being used well first of all we use sunbrella fabric which is one of the best fabrics on the market uh, best outdoor fabrics on the market uh, they make a couple different types of fabric. They make uh, a furniture grade fabric, which is typically softer, a little bit softer to the touch and feel, uh, but more porous and a little bit less durable than what they call their marine grade fabrics. And their marine grade fabrics are the same fabrics that are on uh, canopies, uh, boat binamies, canopies, awnings, that sort of thing. So they're made to truly repel water. Um so because our products are in and around water so much, we've chosen to only use marine grade umbrella, which is pretty much one of the most expensive fabrics on the market. Um, but what's so critical there is the, the cushion itself is not going to absorb water. It's going to repel water. Now, I say that if you were to take a garden hose and hold it on the cushion, over time, it is going to saturate the fabric and then therefore it is going to soak in some water. That's where we take the extra step of using a open cell foam inside of our cushions. Everybody always complains about patio furniture cushions. After a heavy rainstorm, you know, two days later, I go to sit on my patio and my chase or my, my cushion and then my butt gets wet, right? And nobody wants to go sit on the furniture or they think there's a hassle of bringing their cushions in. So even when we do patio furniture, when we manufacture patio furniture now, we still utilize the marine grade umbrella. And the idea here is that the water is going to bead on top of the cushion and then eventually dry out versus penetrate the cushion and go through. But if it does oversaturate and penetrate and go through, we use an open cell foam that allows the water to go straight through that foam. And then we use a mesh net on the bottom of the cushion, which allows that water to go straight out the bottom. So at no point in time is it sitting in or is it holding water. Now, this all sounds great, but now our cushion is $300, let's just say, for, for a, a sectional piece versus $120 or $150 that you might buy at your local cheaper furniture store or your Costco or your Sam's. But look, when we developed the Chase Lounger, we have a tiny, tiny, tiny percent of a return rate. Uh, and usually it's just because they want to exchange it for a different color or maybe the, the what they bought does not work properly uh, on their tanning ledge because of the depth of the water. So what we said was, why do we want to start offering a cheaper product as we move into patio furniture and increase our return rate versus why not just use the best materials that exist in the market and offer the best possible patio furniture that we're going to get the least possible returns on? And that's what we did, knowing we're not interested in starting to become a, an outdoor furniture manufacturer more than just in-water furniture unless we can do it the best way it can be done and continue our brand and our reputation based on that versus trying to go out and find a cheaper way to do it. In other words, I'd rather sell less to people that expect quality than sell a whole bunch more to people that don't care and then just really dilute my brand. Couldn't agree with you more, Chris. All right, Chris. Um, so we just want to talk about, you know, the Ledge Lounger brand because, you know, to us, it just looks so iconic. Um, can you talk to us, you know, from the beginning of even just choosing, choosing what the logo was going to be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, 
I've had a good deal of experience when I was when I was involved in student media at LSU. Uh, it's virtually what I did. I mean, we went around to small mom and pop businesses around campus, and we helped them build their brand, build their brand awareness, and build their business. Um, you know, so when when I came on board with my father and his company, Custom Design Pools, I redid the logo. You know, started the social media pages. Uh, started getting pictures and started to create a following. I realized how important that following was. You know, I, I had some pretty good marketing and advertising background just from the Dallas Morning News. So it was really neat to be able to start Ledgelander and have this uh, project that I could start from the absolute ground up. And I realized the importance uh, of everything we were doing and how important that brand image was going to be. So, you know, I didn't just have a logo created and then just start using it. I, I spent the time to reach out to a few different designers that had, um, had done some logos and different things I liked that I'd seen in the past. And, uh, one of the designers I worked with early on, uh, she was just a, she was awesome. I mean, she really understood the product. She understood what we were trying to do. And, um, she, she nailed it. I think she created the logo. It's the first logo that we ever made. It's the first logo, it's the same logo we use today. Oh, wow. Uh, same color scheme. You know, here we are seven or eight years later. Uh, so, we're, you know, I'm very, very proud of that. And I feel like, look, every now and again, you get lucky uh, in business. And I feel like that's one area that, you know, I think we nailed it right off the bat. Unfortunately, we haven't had to had to change it. Um, you know, I, I want to go to say that we've got an exciting product. So, Certainly, it's easier to advertise a Chase lounge chair and to market a Chase lounge chair that goes in the water that you can lay out in the pool because it's such a cool thing to do, right, than it is to market uh, another piece of, I don't know, there's, obviously, there's certain things that are more fun to look at, um, you know, whether it's, a, you know, selling a washer machine or a dryer or a dishwasher or, you know, certain things that you just can't really get too, too excited about. Um, so our product is, is easy to get excited about number one, which, which makes it certainly makes it a little bit easier. Um, but number two is, you know, in the furniture industry, even in the pool industry, a lot of people don't put people in their ads, which blows my mind because I can see it and it can look really cool, but if I can't see somebody using it, enjoying it, that's a whole nother element. Well, a couple of furniture companies uh, that we've talked to since we concepted and created our brand, they were very, very, uh, they were asking a lot of questions to us. You know, how do you do this? How have you done this? So forth and so on, because they've seen the success that we've had. And a lot of them say, I'm, we're always afraid to put people in our ads for so many different reasons. And I say, well, you've, you've never done it before, so why don't you do it and see what the result is of doing it? In other words, don't get stuck in your old legacy ways of how you always did something. Try something new. Um, what we found, and it actually goes back to when I was uh, custom design pools, you know, I made, uh, instead of doing pictures, because everybody was doing pictures of pools, I actually hired a video company and we made videos of all of our pools. And you can go to custom design pools website, still exists. It's uh, cdphouston.com, as in custom design pools, the city houston.com. And you can see five or six videos that we've made of pools. Well, there's one particular video where the first 30 seconds of it is the pool, the beautiful scenery, and the second half of it is the kids playing in the pool, going down the slide, going on the rope swing. There was a rock climbing wall in this pool, just a huge pool. 
And I noticed that when I showed that video to consumers and clients, I got better feedback. They became more interested because they saw how it was being used. Um, and so I took that concept over to Ledge Lounger and said, look, we're not just going to place an ad with just a lounge chair sitting in a pool. That does look cool, but let's show it being used. And I think we've kind of carried that concept all the way through. I, I challenge people, look at look at other furniture stores that exist, look at other furniture companies that exist, and you'll see that a lot of their furniture does not have, they simply don't have people in it. And is it because they're afraid of choosing the wrong person with the wrong ethnicity or because they're afraid if they put a woman in the ad that a man's not going to buy it or they're afraid to put a, a man in the ad, the woman's not going to buy it? I mean, that's why we try things, right? And I think that's where... A-B testing can hold true. I'm sure you all have heard of A-B testing, but sometimes when we send out an email marketing campaign, we might send to 50% of our audience, we're going to send this email. To another 50%, we're going to send this email. Then we're going to test which email was more successful. That way, moving forward, we can try and identify what we're doing to be more successful. So always challenging yourself, always challenging what you're doing, and not just doing it the way that everybody else is doing it. Look at the way everybody else is doing it. Try and figure out how to do it better. Um, and for us, again, it's putting pictures in our ads. Uh, it's not just accepting uh, one of our best images we've ever done. We actually spent the money uh, before we were making good money. We spent the money to go down to Puerto Vallarta and take a picture in a, I think it was a four or five million dollar house. And we hired this beautiful model and we put her in this chase and, you know, it's one of our leading images and it has been, and it's probably that one image has resulted in selling a whole lot of products. It's because we were willing to go big to get big results. Uh, and I think too many times people don't try and go big or they're afraid if I, if I spend too much money on this photo shoot, or if I, if I don't hire, maybe I'm going to try and hire a hundred dollar photographer as opposed to a $500 photographer. You know, I get it. You're trying to scrap things together to get a result but maybe you should save up for a few more months or a few more weeks and do it right. Go big. And in fact, that's one thing that I've challenged our company recently on is over time, you kind of get complacent and then you start doing photo shoots in areas that might be more convenient versus areas that are going to produce better results. So you have to continue to challenge that. And we realize, yeah, we have to continue to put fresh images out there, fresh pictures out there, keep everybody excited about our brand or brand. And we should try and do better than what we've done in the past, not just accept a photo shoot at a local apartment complex is good enough. You know, why not go down to, you know, Arizona and do something out in the desert at a really cool, unique apartment complex? Because after all, nowadays, it's not just a matter of the product in the picture. It's a matter of how awesome the picture looks because we only have so much time. You're, you're looking at so many pictures and why, when you're flipping through your Instagram feed, do you slide past a picture and why do you stop on a picture? What is it about the picture that makes you stop and look at it? If I see the everyday environment, I'm more likely to move past it. But if I see something that stands out and is exciting, then I'm more than likely to stop on it, like it, look at it, forward it, share it, do all these kind of things. So just understanding how the every detail that you're putting into it, even again, how good of a photographer you're using. Understanding how all those things impact it makes you typically take the time to do it as best as you can possibly do it versus just throw something together. I guess the advice there is don't don't take anything lightly, even if it's just a simple photo shoot, even if it's 
you know, anything, you know, really sit down and brainstorm. How can we do this better than anybody else has done it in the past? That's awesome. I think that's huge. Just being resourceful. Um, you might not have the money to, you know, afford the best photographer, but you could sure learn to use a camera phone or a $500 DSLR camera or something and just make the very best of it and always kind of have, um, that drive to want to maybe hire, you know, this photographer one day, like Jimmy, I think you've worked with Jimmy before. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And he's phenomenal with the the drone videos and all the different things that he does. He's just definitely one of my favorite photographers for sure. For sure. Well, and let me, let me touch on that real quick. Cause you know, it's, there's a fine line, right? Like, do I want to buy a camera and go be a photographer? So how much is the camera going to cost me? What do I need to learn? Like, we, uh, Brett Abbott with, um, a marketing company out of Austin, he does a lot of pool builder stuff. Right. And you know, when I, I went out and bought a drone when I was a pool builder and I started taking pictures of my pools with the drone. Right. Well, you know, that 3000 feet elevation, looking down at a pool straight down, that picture is really not that interesting, but where the drone is really great is when we get 12 or 13, 14 foot up and we shoot it from an angle looking down. That's a really good picture. And it looks great. Well, I can go spend $3,000 on a drone or $2,000 on a drone or maybe today $500 on a drone. And I can go spend five or six hours in the field trying to learn how to use the drone and take the image. Or I can pay a guy with a drone that knows how to fly it, (laughs) knows how to take a picture, $500 and have him go over there and do it and get a much, much, much better result. Right? So I challenge people. Yeah, you think you're a photographer. You think you can grab your iPhone and take a picture. I, I do. I, I congratulate the resourcefulness. And of course, that's better than not doing anything at all. But there comes a point where you have to realize you're good at doing what you're doing. Let other people do what, be good at what they're doing mm-hmm. and pay them what it takes. And I can guarantee you, if you pick up the phone and you call a local photographer and you say, I've just created this business idea. I really want, I need your help. I can't afford your $500 fee. I can't afford you for $200. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come pick you up. I'm going to do whatever you have to do to work with individuals to get a better price, to get the professional to participate. And even if you tell them, hey, look, just let me know in the next month or two when you get an opening. I'm not going to block your schedule. Let me know when you get an opening and I'll make myself and my product available. I'll bring it to you and you can shoot. make it as convenient as possible for the other person and tell them, Hey, if this goes really well, then of course I'm going to be able to give you more business and more business and more business. And it's going to lead to a greater thing. Again, you might not get the very best photographer out there, but you're person you're probably going to get a photographer that knows how to do it better than how you do it. Hundred percent, love that. Do you think you guys have just did you make your mind up in the beginning that it was just going to have this aesthetic and it would just stay? Because I feel like you guys have a very distinctive look, even if the chase wasn't in the picture i feel like the way the the picture is aligned and the edits of the photos and just everything kind of has a very just ledge lounger look to it was it really important to just keep everything kind of uniform and you know what i mean because it's it's you might be next to a really luxurious crazy looking pool but there's still a sense of uh minimalism in it i guess um it's kind of simple yet complex i guess a little bit you know, that's a real tricky thing. So first and foremost, what's important is you you understand that you got to have a brand identity, right? And you say, I'm only going to accept things that fall into this criteria. 
whatever that criteria is. And that's how we're going to represent our brand. Um, you know, oftentimes some of my salespeople want to just, because it's convenient and easy, share a photo that they received from a client with other people. You know, I'm very cautious to allow salespeople to just go send out any photo they want. Uh, our marketing team now in-house, we have uh, three people on marketing team, four people on our marketing team. JC, our marketing director. Y'all have been working with Chelsea. She's done a great job with social yes. media and PR. Chelsea's uh, awesome. We have a graphic designer in-house now, and we have our own web developer in-house now. Awesome. These are critical things. A lot of people say, well, man, you're, you're, you're not necessarily a big enough business to have an in-house marketing staff. Brand for us, because we're a lifestyle brand, brand for us is so critical. And if I rely on anybody outside of our business to do it, they're not going to be fully aware of what it is we're doing and pay 100% attention to it. So if I go hire a media agency that's working with 15 other companies and we're just another company, then how in tune to what we're doing in our brand are they ever going to be? Right. So that's where Boom. it was one of my first, <laughs> actually one of my first five hires. I hired JC, our, our marketing director, and she owned it. I mean, she owned it and she... She acted like she was the owner of the business and this is her brand and she's going to make sure that it's her baby. And every day she's going to focus on it and make sure that that it's on track. You know, so uh, by hiring in-house, we've been able to keep our brand tight um, and focus on doing it the right way. When you outsource it, commonly you'll just do things just to get them done. Um, you'll make decisions to, we just need to get this done. Let's just get it done. So we're going to use this picture as opposed to this picture or we're willing to sacrifice. We don't want to sacrifice here at Legendary. We want, we want to make sure that everything we're doing is uh, quality and it's it's held to the highest standard. So we can do that when we have more control over it because it's in house versus out of house. That's awesome. Is it difficult to choose what photos you're going to share? Because I feel like you see ledge pieces all over the place. You know, it's, there's some really amazing hotels with great views and different things like that. Um, is it difficult sometimes to pick and choose what pictures you're going to use for social posts? You know, sure it is. I mean, we, we always ask ourselves, are we using the same photo too often? Um, <clears throat> fortunately with the, the resources that we have, we get access to a lot of photos, whether it's our photo shoots or whether it's some of our higher end pool builders that are sharing their pictures with us that we buy the rights to, um, in some cases. Um, I think what you have to be real cautious of too, though, is you can't just show a hundred percent really, really, really high end photos, right? Because sometimes the average consumer can't relate to that. So if you got a guy building a $60,000 pool and they see ledge launders in, uh, you know, $200,000 pools and they never see them a $60,000 pool, they might think that that product is out of their reach. Um, so that's where social media helps. You know, you want to, social media is nice because uh, I, I'm not spending $6,000 on, on, a, on a newspaper ad or excuse me, a magazine ad where I want to have the absolute best photo I can, but I'm actually just posting one on social media. So if a high-end consumer is following us and they see a, uh, an average picture come across the, the site, it's okay because the next one they might see is going to be a higher-end one or they go view our our profile and they can see a mix of everything. Um, so you, you just have to make sure that you're looking at your market and what that ad is going to, uh, because we have multi-channel sales. In other words, we sell to interior designers. We sell to multifamily. We sell to hospitality. We sell to resorts. We sell to pool builders. We sell to consumers. So every time we're putting an ad in a different publication, 
or we're sending an email to those different markets, we're considering what market it's going to. Let's face it, if you can hire an interior designer to design your backyard space after a pool is built, you probably have a good bit of money. Therefore, we're going to make sure that the ads going to that market have a great, great, great appeal. Whereas in other markets, if we're going to the multifamily market, we want to make sure that, yeah, we don't want to use just the absolute highest in uh, apartment complex because a majority of apartment complexes are not absolute highest in. So we want to reach a consumer base or a, a, a multifamily market with the, a good picture. So in other words, we're not going to, um, another thing you got to consider is we're not going to market to the multifamily segment with a pool with two ledge loungers in it, a residential pool with two ledge loungers in it. We're going to choose a commercial pool with 30 ledge loungers on the tanning ledge and a lot of patio furniture in the background. We're going to have to make sure that we tailor the ads, tailor the content in the ad to the individual market. And I think that's one thing we've done very well since the start. Very good. Agreed. And know that it's a big piece um, now and probably has been for a little bit for the ledge pieces to be used um, for a lot of builders in their main photo shoots. Cause I see a lot of high end builders now and there's something about seeing that piece in the pool. They're not, might not be somebody in the pool, but you take it a little bit more seriously and you, in your mind, you think it's a luxury pool by just seeing that piece and just a beautiful pool. Um, you know, one of our you know favorite builders out here, and good friend Jeremy Noggle with uh, Premier Paradise. A lot of his, you know, very unique pool builds have ledge loungers in them. And we just, man, we freaking love seeing them every single time. <laughs> yeah, we certainly do, t- do too, of course. And we, uh, we appreciate uh, Jeremy supporting our brand. Um, he, uh, he built some absolute fabulous work and, um, and it is exciting to see it. In fact, I, I still get excited when I see him post some stuff and it's got three or four of our, or four of our five of our products in it. <laughs> Um, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, anything fresh, any new innovative ideas are always going to catch people's attention because we've been looking at pools for what, probably 80 years now. Um, I think, you know, 1920s, 1940s. Um, and they've been the same thing for a really long time. And we're breaking the surface of the water. We're introducing something fresh that some people still haven't seen, even though our brand's been around now for seven, seven years or so. Um, there's still a lot of people out there that don't know that Ledge Laundry exists, and we're we're excited to continue to uh, to grow in that market, and we appreciate all the publishers that post pictures with our product. It's pretty genius if you think about it that almost a big marketing piece of your business is other people doing it where they buy your furniture and they can't wait to take photos of it to share and that's pretty much really good brand awareness because seeing one of Jeremy's pools with a ledge lounger on it, it's only doing, you know, good things for your company. I mean, obviously for his as well, because obviously you have a picture of this amazing pool and design, but having that piece in it, I mean, it's just, it's really cool because some, it might be a picture that doesn't really have your aesthetic, but the word is getting out, you know, because sometimes we think that way where we're like, you know, I wouldn't have posted that, but that's going to do us good because they're talking about it. And it's just kind of, and it's in, it's positive, you know, it's nothing negative about it. It's just not something that um, ties in with um, our color scheme and aesthetic. And it just doesn't have, uh, you know, all the things that we need, but it must be really cool to develop something that, you know, other people can almost market for you. 
Absolutely. It's kind of like, do y'all have the, the Yeti brand, the coolers? Can't yeah. afford it yet. But yeah, we yeah, don't. Can't we don't. <laughs> I don't mean personally, but in the market, I mean, the Yeti's yes, out yes. there. And it's, it's amazing that what makes people wear a hat that has the word Yeti on it. Right. Right. Like what? <laughs> what inspires them to do that? I mean, it's an it was an ice chest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people have Yeti stickers on the back of their cars, and it ultimately is their branding. You know, mm-hmm. they're associating themselves to a a rugged, wild life. You know, you look at Yeti's ads now, and they are, you know, pictures of a rock climber climbing a wall with a Yeti backpack on, or pictures of a hunter, or a video of a hunter with a Yeti ice chest in the back with his, you know, game or his catch in an ice chest. You know, that's where this brand awareness is so strong. And, you know, it's just like how many people put Apple stickers on the back of their car when Apple was a cult. Um, but the hard part is, is how do you keep that going? You know, you don't yeah. see nearly as many Apple stickers on the back of vehicles today than you did when when Apple first started, uh, because everybody thought, man, I'm a part of a unique, unique brand here and there's not everybody doing it. So the challenge is always how do we keep all this stuff going? How do we continue to innovate? And continue to strive. A lot of times what happens is businesses are bought out and all of a sudden it becomes all about generating revenue or generating profit versus really taking the time to to keep people inspired and keep innovating and keep the brand going. Uh, so that's one thing we're always aware of here and we want to make sure that we approach very cautiously. But we we are focused on continuing to develop our brand Um and we look, we certainly want, just like uh, you are today, we certainly want more people wearing hats with our logo on them. So we want to continue <laughs> to inspire them. Thanks, and Chelsea. <laughs> and that starts all the way back at innovation, right? Yeah, so. Most definitely. Well, congrats on all the social media success. And um, yeah, it's just been a really cool movement. And there's not too many brands that are uh, kind of have that lifestyle vibe to them, but you've done a really good job at keeping that up. Um, Thank you. But I have one question. Um, so, so you came from the Dallas news, right? How did you, cause a lot of people I don't think can do this is go from print to a whole entire mind change, you know, mind shift into this whole social media challenge because, you know, a lot of people that are still doing print still want to do print. They don't understand the value or they're not willing to change or adapt, you know, like you guys have been or you have been personally. It sounds like you've kind of taken every experience and then brought it to where it is now. But how 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 come you are so open to to making those changes and move, you know, going along with the movement as opposed to staying stuck in that old way of thinking? You went to the internet back then. It wasn't necessarily probably Yeah, from yeah. Yeah, social media. Well, I mean, so at LSU, we had 27,000 copies of a newspaper, excuse me, 12,000 copies of a newspaper that went out every single day, and we sold print media there. Now, in a college environment, um, I think newspapers will continue to be successful because you have such a captive audience. Uh, in a big world media environment, uh, will newspapers, can, you know, Houston Chronicle, Dallas Morning News, where these other papers continue to be successful? No, not as much because you really have to go out of your way to grab it. And people just simply aren't, you know, in a class, in a, in a college environment, you're sitting at a desk before you're trying to wait, t- kill time before your teacher walks in. I'd love to see what that environment looks like today with social media, because I'm sure they'd rather look through their Instagram feed or their Facebook feed well before they're going to read a newspaper. But I think to answer your question more broadly, it's more a matter of just being open to 
education and growth. You know, I think a lot of people that, to your point, sell media still today, sell newspaper media or print media versus trying to go catch the times of the, you know, virtual world or shall I say the digital world. Uh, it's because they're afraid of change and they're afraid of learning new things. Um, they're afraid of failure. Now, it's it's ultimately their fear of failing, failing that is going to result in their failure. Mm-hmm. because they're not willing to learn what the next coolest thing is or educate themselves so they can diversify their their product. I think too many times people are afraid because they think that if I change I'm going to have to I'm going to have to always be different. And the fact of the matter is is if I'm really good at selling print media and I go start selling digital media, I can still sell print media. Why don't you just offer a solution to your client that is both and then eventually you'll become so confident and so comfortable in print and digital that you'll start forgetting about print. Too many times people think, oh, I've just got to, I got to wake up one day and make a change. No, that's not the case. Again, every day, make 1%. Over 100 days, you'll realize that you just made a huge change and you didn't even realize it was a huge change because you did it over such a, a period of time that you're comfortable with it. And, and hopefully we can talk about this at a later date. And I'd, I'd love to be on the podcast to talk about it. But it's the same thing with charging for designs for pool builders, right? And this is obviously a much bigger conversation than this. But people are so fearful in charging for designs because they think once I start saying I'm going to charge for designs, that means I have to charge for a design every time I walk through the door. And that's not the case. The first time as a designer I ever charged somebody for a design was because the guy was pretty much a excuse me, but he was an asshole and I didn't, I didn't want to do his project anyway. Right. So if I lost the job, I didn't care. So I had the confidence to try and charge him. I charged him and unfortunately he accepted. And then I had, <laughs> I had to be, be paid by an asshole to design a job for an asshole. Um, but again, I was willing to take the chance on that one because I wasn't afraid of losing the job because I really didn't want it anyway. Right. Um, so I think it's being open-minded and it's applying the new ideas and the new concepts at a point in time in which you're comfortable doing it, giving things a chance to be successful versus just ruling it out altogether. That's really a good point because I mean, and I think it goes, that can go towards our industry too, because that's kind of what we're up against with, you know, a lot of the older mentalities in the industry not wanting to move forward with new innovative ways or move forward with new ideas and not, you know, share knowledge or you know, advanced knowledge, you know, and, and that goes all over the whole industry where we're still seeing all this old stuff, which like I've said before on here, we respect so much for the way, you know, the path that they've put out there for all of us to grow on. But if we can kind of have that idea that I think you're, yeah, get, get one step better, one you know, 1% better every day or, or change 1% every day and kind of just learn both ways. That way we're kind of elevating everybody at the same time that helps, you know, each, each part of this. And it is, it is really far behind in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of, a lot of our industry is behind. So it would be a cool idea if people could just take that mindset and say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to try one new thing a day and see, see what happens, you know, try to do a little bit more today than yesterday and kind of, you know, maybe, maybe there is something to this whole, you know, new, new movement. Sure. And what, what I think everybody needs to realize is if you've gone out into corporate America and then you come back into the pool industry 
um, and not that the pool industry isn't corporate America, certainly there's some big pool companies out there, but we're in an environment where 99% of the people around us are not so excited about innovating and growing. They're happy doing the same thing they do every day. So when we say, hey, you only have to become 1% better every day or a tenth of a percent better every day to be successful, it's because the people around us aren't. So now let's compare that to going into the technology industry. They don't get the luxury of being a tenth of a percent better every day. They have to be a hundred percent better every day or else they're going to get run over. Mm -hmm. Right. So how lazy in a way are people in our industry that they're not willing to grow one percent a day or, or for, for the, for the sake of the conversation, of yep. just a little bit every day. It is. I challenge anybody in our industry that says it's hard to stand out or it's hard to do things better than anybody else. That's just simply not true. We do too. All you have to do is try and want to get better. And if you simply have that mentality and you actually do it, you're going to end up better than a large percentage of, of your competitors. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's really cool. I think, you know, one of the biggest, you know, examples of that is like the auto trader. I mean, my dad worked there for, like 15 years, but you know, it's no longer an actual magazine. They took that idea and somebody said, Hey, you know, let's try this internet thing. And now it's hundred percent internet, you know, and Blockbuster mm -hmm. did the opposite. So Blockbuster had the idea. Blockbuster could have been Netflix and they didn't, you know, that's a, <laughs> both those are really big, good examples of that, Whoops. you know, <laughs> but the auto trader is hundred percent online. And that's, they used to have these huge facilities. I used to go to as a little kid, you know, and my dad would bring me to these huge manufacturing plants where, I see all these magazines being put together and now that doesn't even exist. They're just hundred percent online. But the concept has to stay the same. Yeah. It's just the way that people digest it changes, you know, just because if your thing is education, doesn't have to be print, doesn't have to be podcast. You just have to change with the times and it's usually a soft transition. You know what I mean? You just Absolutely. have to be paying attention. Yeah. Let me look at, look at Uber, look at how disruptive Uber was. Look at, um, you know, Amazon, look at how, how disruptive Amazon was. But I think what's so critical to realize here, and this is a lot to do with a lot to talk about what we've, what we have been talking about is Amazon was not created overnight. Uber was not created overnight. Now everybody looks at Am Amazon as this overnight success, or they look at Uber as this overnight success. You know, this guy who started this company and made, you know, millions and billions of dollars well, it's because one day you learned about him and the day you learned about him, you didn't know about him the previous day. And now you know about him. He's really successful. But the fact of the matter is, is every success story starts with somebody who had a concept. They probably got their balls busted a million times trying to take this concept to become a reality. Years and years and years of hard effort, hard work went into it. And it wasn't until 10 years later that you're reading the story about how there's this huge success. Yep. You know, it's this overnight success story that a lot of people buy into that, you know, one day this guy started this business and man, look at him today. Well, what happened in the in the meantime? You know, Mark Cuban, you know, he's he always talks about how he uh, ate macaroni and cheese every night for a year and slept on his friend's couch or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Now, nobody talks about that. They talk about how he's the Dallas owner of the Dallas Mavericks and He's this and he's got that and he's so wealthy and this and that. He owns this company and that company. So, I mean, look at anybody that's done it and that's been successful and look at the amount of effort and work that they've had to put into it. And 
I think that just speaks true to what we're talking about here is, is nothing's overnight success, you know, and you're not going to, you're not going to come up with an idea today and it's going to be a hit tomorrow. You're going to have to put time into it. You're going to put, have to put effort into it. And uh, again, just a little bit at a time. For sure. Right. So, you know, you guys were on the Inc. Top 5000 list, which, you know, represents the most successful independent companies in our economy. Um, this was, you know, I'm sure a huge honor for you guys. And I remember when we even saw it way before we started Pool Chasers, we were just really excited that, you know, somebody in our industry had been a part of this. And we, you know, read Inc. on digital and follow them on the social platforms. And just to see Ledge Lounger be a part of that was just really cool. Um, you know, what is it, how did that feel and what does it take to get to that level of success? You know, and I, you know, list some things over in the questions, um, just because we think it's, we have our tactics on what wakes us up in the morning and what gets us pumped up and it changes for everybody, whether it be, you know, just, you know, yoga, um, or patience, or maybe you gotta listen to some crazy rap music at four o'clock in the morning or <laughs> go for a 4am run. Um, so how does that, you know, how did you get to where you are? You know, yeah, yeah. man, um, that's a big question. I, I, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's pretty hard to sum up, uh, but I'll try. I'm kind of the guy who likes to put a carrot in front of my face um, and then work really, 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 really hard to get it. Um, so I will, you know, one thing I've done recently is, uh, you know, I love spending time on the water. Uh, I'm an avid wake surfer. Uh, in fact, sometimes I, I wish I could move to a climate that's hotter. Uh, all year long so that I can be able to go out on the boat every weekend because that's really what energizes me uh, is getting in the boat and it, it, I just forget about work, right? So I went out and bought a, a Nautique. Uh, <laughs> I'm not recommending people do this, but it was probably really before I could actually afford it. Um, <laughs> of course, today anybody can get loans for anything, it seems like. But um, but I knew that if I wanted to make sure that I kept this thing, I was going to have to go bust it because now I had a monthly payment uh, that I had to make and um, you know, again, that's an example of put that carrot in front of my face and making sure that I'm working hard to be able to achieve kind of this lifestyle or this thing that I put in front of me. Um, you know, a similar deal. I bought a piece of property, you know, at some point where I could, and my goal was to be able to build a house on it. Didn't build a house on it. I ended up uh, building out a barn and I have kind of a, a barn house, but, uh, I certainly reached my goal and now I uh, get to live on this little piece of property that, that uh, my wife and I and my kids love dearly. Um, so I think constantly setting setting goals for yourself, but putting things in front of your face, ideas that I want to achieve this or I want to achieve that. Now, certainly you have to have business goals, but you have to have personal goals too to drive the business goals. Um, you know, I it it was explained to me really, really well. And I, I certainly want to share this because it, it had a great impact on my life. And somebody was at an entrepreneur forum one time that uh, Morgan Stanley was putting on in a gentleman ex explained it this way. He said, what's the definition of being a, a success as an entrepreneur? And uh, that was the question that was posed to him. And he said, you know, I can sum up that a lot like this. You, you're climbing a mountain and from the ground, from zero elevation, you look up and you see the peak of this mountain at, at, at 8,000 feet. And it's pretty steep. And you climb and you climb and you climb and you are exhausted. By the time you get to 7,500 feet, you're just dead tired. But what is, what's, 
the you're getting a whole lot of inspiration because you only have 500 feet to go. So you get up the other 500 feet and now you're at the, what you thought was the top of the mountain, 8,000 feet. And then you turn around and you realize that from zero elevation, you couldn't see the other peak on the other side of the mountain. And the mountain's not 8,000 feet, it's 10,000 feet. And you are absolutely exhausted and you're dead tired. But now you realize you got 2,000 more feet to go. And then you get to that 10,000 foot peak and all of a sudden there's another peak that you didn't see. And it is just a never ending mountain. That is business. That is entrepreneurialism. That is that is starting your own business because if you're ever going to settle for a peak, your business is going to fall apart. Your business is going to die. If you're ever going to stop innovating, if you're ever going to stop pushing, if you're ever going to stop inventing, uh, if you're ever going to stop growing, uh, you have to keep going. You have to keep climbing. You have to keep looking for that next peak because if you don't, again, you're going to be gone. And then what are you going to do next? You know, I think a lot of people have this idea in mind that they're going to build a business one day and they're just going to sell it. If you build a business thinking you're going to sell it, it's never going to be as great as what it would be if you build a business wanting to stick with it long term and growing. I'm not saying that you don't sell when the time's right, but certainly you don't you don't have that in the back of your mind all the time. Uh, it'll hamper your growth. Um, so you, you've got to want it. You've got to be willing to drive and you've got to be willing to work hard for it. Uh, and if you're not, then, I mean, that's why not everybody owns a business. That's why not everybody starts a business. I think when we're looking at Shark Tank and we're looking at all this stuff out there in today's society and media, everybody wants to own their own business. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, is there's some people out there that just will never own their own business because they're just not willing to put in the hustle. They're not willing to to overcome the challenges, you know? Yeah, that's really good advice. Yeah. Thank you. Do you, do you work out or anything, Chris? Uh, you know, it comes and goes. Um, I, uh, I get in kind of a two or three month spurt and then I get just overwhelmingly busy. I have a, a four-year-old at home and I have an 11-month-old at home. Uh, oh. My wife likes to wake up early in the morning and work out and I uh, get the kids ready for school and take my four-year-old to school or excuse me, get one of the kids ready for school and take them to school. Uh, and then a lot of times I'll end up being at the office until seven o'clock. And then, you know, by the time I get home and spend some time with the kids, it's just exhausting. So, you know, I, hopefully as my 11 month old gets a little bit older and I can spend a little bit more time out of the house, I can get back to it. So, uh, I love the idea of it. I, I certainly want to be doing it. I need to be doing it. I definitely get a lot of, uh, stress relief out of working out. Um, but it just, uh, it's not a reality for me at this point in time. I try and schedule lunch time to go work out, and then I end up getting sucked into a meeting. Uh, I'm, look, look here. I'm, I'm, I'm the one telling people don't to make excuses, and now I'm the one making excuses. So uh, I, uh, I damn sure better have a New Year's goal of getting back into it. <laughs> Very good. Us too. <laughs> yeah. So can you share with us maybe some of your favorite books and why, or some of the some of the things that have yeah. motivate you and guide you through your process? Yeah. You know. I'm kind of one of those guys that I love business books. Don't get me wrong, but I'm inspired by a lot of movies. Um, I'm inspired by a lot of uh, real stories. So, you know, uh, Mark Lichtenstein, Lone, Lone Survivor, uh, that inspired me, even though it wasn't necessarily tied to business, but it was tied to overcoming a challenge, working really hard, getting to an end result. I mean, it's kind of sounds silly, but even the, the Facebook movie, the social network movie, you know, I love watching that movie because it inspires me on the regular. So 
So finding inspiration, whether it's through a book or something else, I, I think is is certainly critical. When it comes to books, uh, there are some business books I love. You know, Good to Great by Jim Collins. That's a a, a critical book because it truly helps you identify that you're not going to be able to do it all yourself. You're going to have to get the right people on the bus in the right seats. Virtually, he follows some of the greatest businesses that have sustained the, the test of time. Uh, and he talks about what makes them different than the other businesses that uh, have, have fallen apart over the years. It's a very powerful book. Um, there's a lot of, uh, there's another one by Jim called Built to Last. Uh, you know, there's uh, How to Be a Great Boss. There's, there's a number of books out there. I think, if anything, I'd love the audience to hear about kind of something I've gotten on recently. It's called Blinkist um, or Blinklist. Uh, it's an app. And look, business books are hard to read, especially in today's world, because you have to dedicate a lot, a lot of time to it. And that's why podcasts are so great, because it's an hour here, an hour there, potentially two hours here or there. Podcasts have been tremendous for me. Um, but this uh, this Blinklist book, um, and I'll I'll share the actual name of it because I'm I'm tearing up the name of it here, but um, <laughs> The it's an app where it's basically cliff notes of books and they're called blinks. So you pay 70 bucks, you you subscribe to Blinklist app on on any of the app stores and then you pick a category and you can get the cliff notes, uh, audio version cliff notes of any book. And then whether it's health books or whether it's history books or business books and then if you if you like the cliff notes of the book and they were really intriguing to you, then, of course, you can go out, and pick up that book and read it. Or you can just stick to the cliff notes. And instead of spending the time to read a 300 page business book for a lot of us business owners that can't stay focused uh, for that long, you get the 10 most important topics. So you might have uh, a minute and a half, 10 times of the most important topics of the book. So it's a way of getting the information out of the book very quickly and in a timely manner. And the whole blink might be 15 minutes. Uh, listen to one of those every night before I go to bed kind of deal. Uh, listen to them to the car on the way to work. Um, those are pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you got to constantly change it up. you got to do podcasts sometimes, books sometimes, blinks sometimes, uh, just inspirational movies sometimes. Uh, and you just you, you find it everywhere you can get it. That's pretty sure. genius. That's I can't really wait to awesome. check that out. <laughs> no, I've never heard of it. Especially you get like, you know, 20, 50, 100 pages deep in a book and then it's just like, I can't, I, I don't have time for this. You know what I yeah, mean? You, but <laughs> yeah, you, you certainly, you can't stay with it. And I've, look, I've probably started 10 business books that they just lost me through the middle of the book. And I, I think it's just, you know, that's why fiction exists is because, you know, a fiction can keep your attention. Whereas in a business book, it's a lot harder to keep your attention. So mm-hmm. I think that's one thing this app has done really well. And I'm, I'm pulling the app up now so I can blink. It's just blinkist. Blinkist. B- yeah. B L I N K I S T. Yep. Yep. That's it. And, uh, man, it is, it is awesome. Uh, a lot that. of great topics, <laughs> just about every book on there. Uh, in, you know, especially if somebody at the office says, well, I read this book and it's really great. And you go home and, you listen to a 15 minute blink and then you come back and have a conversation with that guy about the book. Uh, <laughs> I read it too. Yeah, yeah exactly. You'll, you'll blow, blow people out of the water. That's really cool. It's like watching sports center, huh? I didn't have to watch, you know, football all day, Sunday or basketball or baseball <laughs> all during the week. I just watch an hour yeah. of sports center and I know everything that's going on. Man, that is, that is a perfect example. You know, it's kind of like in, in a junior high and, we had a book assignment. We'd go buy the cliff notes and read yep. read the cliff notes, and then all of a sudden, 
uh, you're up to speed. Of course, teachers were smarter than that. Yeah, but, they got smarter. Uh, <laughs> we didn't do it. But uh, but with this, I think there's a lot a lot you can take away from these quick blinks for sure. What are just a couple of podcasts that you said you were listening to some podcasts? What podcasts are you listening to right now? You know, one of them that I've really, really enjoyed that is not so business oriented uh, is Serial. Um, it's a podcast of a, of a journalist who uh, follows a couple different stories. They're all uh, real things that are going on in, in the world today. One, I don't know if y'all are from the military, uh, definitely gets me excited. Just not necessarily war per se, but just the military and uh, special forces and things like that. And they, they actually whole follow the whole story about uh, Bo Birdog, Birdog, excuse me. And um, he's the, the Taliban, the guy who basically um, walked off his post in Afghanistan. Uh, and then he was uh, captured by the Taliban. And then we ended up trading like four Taliban soldiers for him. And it was just a big thing in the media. You know, I like keeping up speed with the news. And that was a, a really interesting story. And the, the girl who who gives this podcast or, or performs or, or is the voice in it, uh, she just keeps your attention. She does such a good job. Um, so I, I like some of that stuff. Uh, there's certainly some, you know, I'm always constantly searching for other podcasts that, uh, that you know, are inspirational or, or are business. There's a couple of entrepreneur podcasts that I follow. I can't, I can't recall any of the names of them. Um, but you know, commonly I'll, I'll hear from entrepreneurs who started this or did this or did that. And again, it's, what's more important to me is that, yes, you can learn a lot from them, but finding the inspiration that just keeps you driving forward. Yep. Pull little pieces out of everything. Yeah. And look guys, I, since we recently learned about y'all, I'm I'm just so excited about what y'all are doing for the industry. And, uh, and, and since we've talked, I've actually mentioned y'all to a whole lot of people and it's amazing how many people actually do know what y'all are doing and, and are, are listening in. So we're excited about that. That's really cool. Thanks for uh, talking about yeah, us. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Don't stop. Yep, <laughs> Thank you. Um, so we're going to kind of wrap things up here a little bit, but um, you know, at the end of the day, you had an idea for a product and you went through all the hardships of developing the product and getting it out on market and hiring and the marketing side of it. Um, what kind of advice would you give for somebody um, just developing a brand spanking new product? And I know you've talked about a lot of this, but if there's just like kind of one good tip on, um, you know, what you should do, um, you know, our listeners would definitely appreciate it. The ones developing a product anyway. Yeah. Well, let me try and I've, I've been long winded on a lot of these answers, but let me try and I guess summarize a few things here. <clears throat> Number one, don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people are afraid to tell other people about their ideas because they're afraid of people stealing it. Um, a large majority of people don't have the desire to rip you off or take your idea and go build something because they, they simply don't have the effort, the time or the desire to do it. So talk to people, ask people for help. Um, it's, it's, you're going to get more valuable information by sharing your idea with a few people you can trust and getting feedback from them. Keep an open mind about the feedback. Don't be closed minded. Um, always listen to what they're saying and research their answers and their thoughts Put yourself in their shoes. Consider what it's like from, from their perspective. Uh, again, 1% every day. It's not 100% win today. It's 1% every day. What's, what's one thing I can do tomorrow to make this project move a little bit further? Um, and hustle. I mean, hustle, kick ass. Just, just every day, put something to it. 
even when you think, man, I'm so exhausted, I'm so tired, even if it's just five, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you know, it's, it's kind of like where I'm so stuck here and working out. They say, even if you just put 15 minutes in your office every day, you're going to get somewhere. You're going to have better results. Same thing with, with starting a business. It's the exact same thing. Um, just push hard, do it. Um, again, ask for help, call me, reach out to me, send me an email. I'm happy to give you any advice I can or any input I can that's going to help you be successful. Um, and, uh, you know, just, I guess the other thing is, is never assume you know exactly what you're doing. Even if you think you know exactly how to do something, ask some other people what their thoughts are. Get some other opinions. Um, I, uh, I'm a member of a CEO group. I, I want to make sure I mention this. Um, every month I meet with 18 CEOs of other businesses. We sit around a table. Uh, there's there's a lot to be said about working in your business. Sometimes you have to step back and work on your business. Mm -hmm. uh, by meeting with 18 other CEOs once a month, the same guys in a room, processing issues, listening to their feedback, listening to their problems, uh, I have saved myself a lot of money and I've grown my business a lot faster than what I would have otherwise. So, uh, you know, stay stay hungry and stay curious. That's gold right there. For sure. <laughs> All right. Well, we kind of just like to let you guys get a little plug for Ledge at the end here. So can you tell our listeners where to find the products? And Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think what's important to know is uh, last year um, we had uh, probably maybe a handful of uh, 20 products. Uh, we just released probably about 60 new products. Uh, oh, we wow. uh, It was a major feat. They're all available in our new catalog. Uh, we're happy to mail it to you if you want. If you want a hard copy, if not, go to our website, download our catalog. It's www.ledgeloungers.com. Uh, take a look at all of our new products. We have everything from cornhole boards, ping pong outdoor ping pong tables, day beds, patio furniture. Obviously, we've expanded our in pool furniture collection. Got a lot of new great things coming in development for 2020. I'm really excited about that stuff. Uh, obviously, you can catch us on Instagram just at Ledge Lounger. Uh, Facebook is facebook.com slash ledge loungers. Not real big on Twitter, Twitter or YouTube, uh, but, you know, follow us, um, join our emails, uh, marketing campaigns. We'll, we'll certainly get something out to you and keep you posted on our brand and what we're doing. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Uh, we know got a lot of stuff going on, so we really, really appreciate your time. This was a huge honor for both me and Tyler, and we really look forward to doing, you know, more episodes with you on some different topics. Hey, thank you all so much. And keep up the awesome work, man. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thank you guys so much for listening. We truly appreciate your time and your ear. It means a world to us that you guys take time out of your day to hang out with us in the Pool Chasers community. So we appreciate all of you. And if you have any questions, please email us at poolchasers.info at gmail.com. Please check out our Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube pages. And check out the Facebook group as well if you have not already. It's been an insane value in there. I've seen so many cool conversations. Greg and I are so proud of you guys for all you're doing in there. So thank you for all the positivity. Also, if you guys are listening to the podcast, if you could take a picture or screenshot of it and share it on your social platforms, that way we can grow this community. That would be great. You know, tag us in it so we can say thank you as well. And if you got any pictures of you wearing the Pool Chasers mixer hats or any of the other swag, it would be awesome to see you guys in it. So take a picture, tag us, and we'll try to reshare it. Also, it would mean the world to us if you guys could go to Apple iTunes, leave a review and rating for the podcast. It really helps us there. So thank you again for your time, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. See you out there, Pool Chasers. chasers.